I am your host, Lev Polyakov at LevPo on Twitter. It is a great pleasure to be here today with Michael Tracy, Bastiat, Giovanni Penichetti. We are going to be getting into the nitty-gritty today of the uh, situation that is still obviously ongoing between Russia, Ukraine, uh, what exactly is going to be happening in the future, as well as uh, looking at what were some of the things that led up to where we currently are. And I know that Bastiat and Michael have uh, different ways of uh, looking at this. Somebody is clicking. I don't know who that is. Uh, but I know that you guys have different ways of looking at this uh, situation, and I want to get into it. But keep it very good faith. Like, I want to make sure that even though, and I'm going to say it again, Slavo Does that apply to you Slavo as well, Ukraine, Slavo Ukraine, you know, the shirt, oh, despite that. See, you no, despite that. It. No, despite it's that. Over. Despite now that. Now I have to do a Hal Putler just to balance that, it out. Despite that. What I'm going to say is that despite that, I want to make sure that everybody here has their chance to speak. I don't want any interruptions. I want to make sure that we could all get our points across like civilized human beings. Because at the end of the day, I think we're all we're all after the truth. We all want to figure out what's going on. And that's why it is a great pleasure to be here. I also want to say, don't forget to subscribe to Break the Rules. Break the Rules brings everybody together of different persuasions, different ideas of what's going on in the world, as well as bringing the insiders and the outsiders together. So I really appreciate that. Please subscribe and don't forget to click the bell and add a like. It helps the algorithm out tremendously. I, uh, I guarantee it that that's going to be really, really good. Anyway, to get us started, I want to find out a little bit about Bastiat and Michael. So, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You are a journalist. You are a lover of dogs, which is great. I love dogs as well. And you are New York City-based. Uh, so, yeah, go for it, my friend. Yeah, I still don't have a good elevator pitch for myself to just uh, distill my essence into a few uh, pithy sound bites. But yeah, I'm a journalist, uh, largely on Substack, although I've written for publications across the political spectrum over the years. I'm probably one of the few journalists that can say they've written for both the uh, American conservative and the nation and, you know, Mother Jones and uh, Reason sure. Magazine and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, I worked, I was, uh, had an interesting interlude where for a year and a half or so i uh, did work for the young turks it was actually the only time i in um really maybe the past 10 years or so that i had a, a full-time media job where i was tethered to one institution other than that i've been uh largely uh independent although you know i have uh different affiliations i guess you would say with a variety of outlets uh yeah i live in um actually jersey city although i just say i'm from new york city for simplicity's sake um and yeah. Uh, any other questions? Feel free to ask. I I was on a stream last night and I was urged to go into my whole backstory, starting with childhood and stuff. I don't know if you want to get into that. Detail, <laughs> but, it was uh, a different stream. We would actually. But... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, Bastiat, uh, let us know a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, I uh, go by Bastiat here on the World Wide Web. Uh, I uh, lately have been doing a lot of posting on Twitter, but I also once in a while stream on Twitch.tv and YouTube. Uh, by day, I work as an attorney in the natural gas industry. Uh, and that's what I've been doing for, I guess, the last eight years or so. Uh, just an attorney in the energy business. And uh, yeah, I typically come at things from uh, what I would call a liberal perspective, although I know that's one of those words that I uh, can be twisted in a lot of different ways, uh, and I you know, really enjoy politics and discussions like this. So 
looking forward to it. And uh, I got to say, Lev uh, has uh, perhaps more than anybody else I've ever uh, worked with on doing anything like this has been more studious about uh, about scheduling than I got to say anybody else. So uh, uh-huh. kudos to you those for yeah, taking, <laughs> taking what you do seriously. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> it, man. And uh, by Not the guessing will come up. I, I'm a, oh, well, according to the news today, I'm sure that will come up. As a topic, but... and by... hey, uh, Boston, yes. can I ask just for my own edification, what is the flag that's uh, tied to the American flag on your oh. uh, lapel pin? I figured the NATO NATO pin would be would be oh, okay, got it. here. Yeah. I, th- I thought it could be EU, but I can't quite see. Hmm. So I have hmm. that one, but yeah, I like I like the flag pin. It's hmm. kind of a kind of a personal. So uh, let's. Uh, we, yes, we need one nice of those uh, NATO uh, uh, fash wave edits right now. We'll throw up on the screen though. with the hologram. So, yes, <laughs> so, we, don't, we don't. We don't. We don't. We don't fash wave edits. But I get what you're saying. Mm. Yeah. All right. So let's. Uh, so okay. Let's get into it now. So I want to find out first from Michael and then Bastiat your view on what. Since we are more or less. I mean, Geo, you might as well be in America what the American slash Western response should be to what's going on right now with Russia and Ukraine so as to ensure the uh, best outcome as we see it. So that's kind of a general thing that I want to bring out right now. I will save more conversations about that in the future because then I want to get into justifications over what happened, different things like that, but just like a general overview of uh, what you see there. So, Michael, uh, go for it. Well, I think before getting into any kind of prescriptive analysis of what ought to be done, it's probably necessary to first spell out descriptively what has been done just to kind of at least perhaps come to some degree of consensus, although I'm sure some of what I'll say here is going to be contested. Um, But it seems blaringly apparent to me and has for basically the entirety of this whole episode that the U.S., has constantly sought to escalate the war in its own way rather than de-escalate the war. And there are a number of aspects of this. Number one, rhetorically, uh, Biden has gone much further in his personalized denunciations of Putin than any American president ever did with the leader of the Soviet Union over the course of the Cold War. Like you would never have had John F. Kennedy in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, excoriating Khrushchev, for example, as a perpetrator of genocide or calling him a war criminal or declaring that regime change ought to be imposed upon the Soviet Union to collapse the uh, governance structure. Um, But Biden has done all that since February and you know this culminated i would say probably in the most uh, vivid form when uh, biden delivered that marquee speech in warsaw poland at the end of march uh, that uh, climaxed at the very sort of uh, end of the speech with uh, biden essentially for the first time publicly demanding regime change in russia he said putin must go or something to that effect Um, And that was a momentous statement for an American president to make about the country with the world's largest nuclear arsenal. Now, of course, there was that kind of 
fake walk back good cop bad cop routine that was done in the immediate aftermath where the white house press operatives immediately sent emails to all their favorite journalists saying oh he didn't actually mean a change in u.s policy this is not the official u.s policy although what is official u.s policy anyway that's sort of a digression uh the point is that biden has over and over again escalated rhetorically to the point that i think he made it whether intentionally or not, I mean, it's hard to know how much intentionality Biden can really have given his mental state, sorry to say. Um, but, you know, whatever the reason, his uh, very much escalated rhetoric has poisoned the well, you could say, for any kind of diplomatic or uh, negotiated settlement potentially being on the offing. And if we're broadening it out to the broader uh, West, you know, the UK is actually also somewhat instructive in how it's handled this with uh, uh, Boris Johnson and uh, senior UK government officials at times even going even further than the US in demanding ever more escalatory steps taken in Ukraine. So for example, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss uh, two weeks or so ago gave a major speech in London where she essentially said that no resolution is tenable in Ukraine if uh, uh, Russia continues to occupy any inch of territory, which would include Crimea, um, which is kind of a step beyond what the status quo even was before the invasion was launched. And then sure enough, um, this week, there were reports from, I don't know what the exact title is of this Ukrainian official, but it was reported in Politico that some, some senior ranking official in the Ukraine government basically echoed what Liz Truss said and said, you know, we're not willing to broker any kind of accord here. Uh, unless Russia is entirely pushed out of all of Ukraine, which I think is happening in concert with um, the escalation on the more military front on the part of the U.S., where, you know, throughout March and April, there were indications that the U.S. was gradually uh, expanding the range of operations it was willing to partake in on behalf of Ukraine or with Ukraine in uh, the sort of in the intensity of the warfare. And that came to a head last week when it was reported in the New York Times via leaks that the U.S. had been operationally involved. Um, there's sort of a dispute as to how crucial the U.S. involvement was, but nonetheless, it was operationally involved in, for example, the killing of Russian generals and the sinking of the flagship Russian uh, warship, uh, um, which is, again, something that you never would have seen over the course of the Cold War or um, it never would have been so uh, cavalierly bragged about. Um, you know, maybe somebody could correct me if there's a Cold War episode that I, maybe I'm not immediately uh, recollecting. Um, so, um, you know, it's sort of uh, interesting, you know, talking about the, again, going to the West, you know, whenever Emmanuel Macron in France um, tries to initiate some kind of diplomatic channel with Putin, you might notice that he's roundly ridiculed and scorned and basically called a total dupe and was, has even, was even criticized recently by his predecessor, Hollande, uh, nominally the Socialist Party leader, although that party's basically been decimated in France, um, for, you know, more or less appeasing Putin. Um, which is bizarre. I mean, how is this conflict to be resolved if not f with negotiations and diplomacy? Um, even at the most kind of hellish uh, low points of the U.S.-Soviet relationship, it was always insisted upon, you know, really by both sides, that there had to be, there must be, there was no other option but to have open diplomatic uh, channels. And those seem to be more and more foreclosed. Even just this week in Congress, there was a bill that was 
being deliberated upon in the House um, that would basically exclude uh, all Russian officials from any of these international meetings like the um, uh, the economic forums and so on and so forth. So that there's not even going to be any interaction anymore between senior level officials between the two uh, governments, which basically seems like to me a recipe for each side to dig in and for the U.S. to just do what it's been doing, which is not to announce, I mean, on a given week, the U.S. isn't announcing some new uh, diplomatic front, some new diplomatic endeavor that it's pursuing. No, what they announce is more and more weaponry and higher and higher grade weaponry. So one week, uh, you know, earlier on, Biden said, you know, it would be too escalatory to send uh, fighter jets through this arrangement that Poland was pr trying to orchestrate. Right. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, Biden's criticized by both Democrats and Republicans for being a wuss. And then it turns out that we the U.S. is facilitating the shipment of hmm. uh, fighter jets to Ukraine in this more roundabout hmm. way. Oh, Michael, I want, um, I want to make sure that uh, Bastiat has a chance to respond again. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll wrap yeah. up. I'll wrap up. Um, so, you know, uh, and then you also, you know, heavy artillery and tanks and, you know, you probably are familiar with this roster of weapons that are being more, more sent. And then just this week, we have the um, kind of culmination of that with uh, 40 plus billion dollars in new war funding being almost unanimously approved with every single Democrat actually approving it and just a handful of Republicans objecting, although some objected on procedural grounds and don't actually have any problem with it on principle. But that's another digression. The point is that if you look at the broad thrust of what the U.S. has done, I think I don't know how you can conclude anything other than that it's been intentionally escalatory on a variety of dimensions. And so before you get into anything prescriptive about what ought to be done going forward, I think yeah, that has to be sort of um, acknowledged as the trajectory that we've been on thus far. Hmm. And I guess the question is whether the escalatory trajectory is the right one or not. But uh, Bastiat, uh, take it away. I would love to hear your response to that. Sure. Uh, so I, I don't uh, accept the notion that the United States has been engaging escalatory behavior at all. In fact, the United States has repeatedly made attempts to de-escalate while the Russians have continually attempted to escalate. For example, while the Russians were building troops up on the border, the United States made it clear that uh, it knew what the Russians were up to and repeatedly attempted to share uh, its intel with, uh, with the world uh, almost as soon as it got it. Uh, that intel eventually turned out to be correct, that the Russians were planning an invasion, even though the Russians repeatedly lied to the world and said there was going to be no such invasion. The United States refrained from providing some of the heaviest arms to Ukraine until the outbreak of war. Now, perhaps that, that may very well be seen as having been a, a real disaster in terms of, of, of setting the Ukrainians up for less success than they've had as a result. But the United States, as a result, uh, certainly tried to avoid sending uh, some of the heaviest weapons as a, as a as a sign of its intent not to escalate. The United States repeatedly said that it was not going to deploy troops to Ukraine. There'd be no American soldiers in Ukraine. Uh, when the prospect of a no-fly zone came up, most discussion about that seems to have gone away, but that was something that was discussed for at least a few weeks after the outbreak of war. President Biden repeatedly said that you know, there would be no such no-fly zone, that in fact that would be World War III. Another sign that while the United States is clear in terms of its uh, desire to help the Ukrainians in a material sense, that it has no interest and wants to avoid uh, direct confrontation with the Russians. The United States has also repeatedly said that uh, you know, it's for the Ukrainians to make their own decisions in terms of, uh, in terms of any diplomatic settlement with the Russians. But at the same time, the United States has also refused to 
accept uh, the notion that the Russians have some kind of entitlement to a victory of some form in Ukraine, this kind of notion of an off-ramp where Russia gets something out of the war. Uh, I think this is certainly the right policy, and it is certainly true that America has rejected the idea of a diplomatic settlement in the form of, say, uh, you know, of course, would be up to the Ukrainians, but America seems very disinterested in a diplomatic settlement that would involve surrendering more territory to the Russians, including much of the territory that they've already taken. In fact, through uh, America's provision of weapons and supplies to the Ukrainians, and of course, primarily through the heroic efforts of the Ukrainians themselves, they pushed an invasion that was initially made on three or four axes uh, away from the capital, uh, away from Kyiv, away from the Northeast, and instead it forced the Russians to consolidate uh, in a much narrower front. Uh, in essence, American help, and of course the help of many of our uh, allies as well, has ensured that the scope of of what Russia can reasonably achieve has itself been scaled back considerably. So even after the outbreak of war, America's involvement here has not led to some wider war, but has in fact prevented the more uh, uh, the larger gains that the Russians seek to make, and in so doing prevented the Russians, at least for now, from carrying uh, their war in Ukraine elsewhere. Uh, Moldova, for example, where the Russians have had troops since 1993 during the Yeltsin years, predating you know, really all of what we might talk about tonight, or at least a lot of it. So American involvement has been uh, of a nature that I think you might look at it as being escalatory if you have a, a generally negative view of the military or of the provision of armaments uh, in general. But you know, if you're thinking about what I think America's real goal is, which is to prevent a war or to prevent a future conflict with the Russians, a general conflict as opposed to you know, the conflict with Ukraine that Russia has sought out and now realized, uh, American policy makes a lot of sense. Because one, America has sought to uh, ensure that Russia doesn't feel like it gets something out of this kind of hostile, aggressive act. For example, uh, America tried to engage Russia with diplomacy before the outbreak of war, but it did refuse to accept Russia's terms uh, for one-on-one -on -one negotiations that would mean the exclusion of Ukraine from NATO uh, in written form, right? And America made this decision. America did this because, sure, over the long term, over the short term, that might theoretically have possibly prevented the war. Of course, there's no way of knowing that. It doesn't really stand to reason to imagine that saying that you know, no help would be coming to Ukraine would somehow uh, ensure that uh, this country that has been repeatedly conquered by the Russians would, would somehow avoid that fate again. But uh, you know, the United States has, has engaged in a policy that has you know, been designed, I think, over the long term, with kind of the long view in mind of avoiding a greater conflict in Europe and empowering Ukrainians to have some say over their own future. So if President Zelensky should decide that he you know, wants to uh, surrender or accept some, uh, some, some loss, uh, you know, that will be ultimately his decision. Hmm. The U.S. doesn't really have any way of uh, attempting to stop him. The U.S. ultimately offered him evacuation and another arguable form of de-escalation when it offered him a ride out of the Capitol, to which, of course, he famously said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Uh, so this idea that uh, the United States has repeatedly tried to escalate things, I just don't think is true. All you can really say toward that end is that America has given a country the tools that it needs to defend itself and done so in a way that ultimately doesn't rob the Ukrainians of agency, but does help ensure that Russia is not able to get away with this kind of aggression uh, in such a fashion that will encourage it to do it again. 
potentially, you know, given how much of Europe is in NATO, in a way that would would require a direct American mm. response that I think none of us wants. Well, if we're talking about aggression, I want to get right now to uh, justifications. So there is the idea that uh, Russia was betrayed by NATO, which promised that it would not expand. That's from that famous uh, James Baker uh, conversation with uh, President Gorbachev at the time. So I want to get into that a little bit just to see what exactly we can uh, dig out from that, because I think a lot of these conversations go back to the idea of was there a justification to Russia to act in the way that it did in response to the West? But before that, uh, to one of the things that Michael said, I want to add a um, caveat, which is I don't think it's correct to compare the Soviet Union to Russia. Even during Stalin's time, there were two competitive uh, powers at play. There was the NKVD, that was the KGB back during that time, and then there was also the Communist Party itself. These were always two organizations that even when you had somebody like Stalin, he still had to answer the Politburo. There was still some kind of a balance that was going on there. After Gorbachev got rid of the Communist Party, it was not the same anymore because you have the KGB with all the influence and all the leadership, and that's been the way it has been since then, since uh, Putin ended up taking over. So I wouldn't say it's exactly the same thing if we're comparing the USSR to uh, the Russian Federation as it is uh, currently right now, just because there is there really isn't any check to the power that Putin's government has as there was in the USSR. So in a way, I'm kind of defending the USSR by uh, saying this right now, but I don't know. It, any comments to that? Any Any clarification? Well, yeah, I mean, I wasn't asserting that. What was the original Russia thing you said? The USSR. Well, I about, just, about Ukraine or about the USSR? I missed the original. Oh, sure. Thing. So, okay, so I just want to make sure that it's understood that when no, we're no, talking, no. what, what, what was it you were replying to? The yeah, said? oh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Yeah, what I, what I was replying to was the idea that the kind of way that uh, the U.S. is handling Russia today, the response that it's giving to Russia was never precedented in terms of how it responded to the USSR. Well, I want to I want to point out in that sense that it is a much more totalitarian country. I'd say I I don't want to uh, instigate that. What was oh, that? Wait, love, love. But you're saying current Russia is more totalitarian than the Soviet Union? Yes. How's that for a hot okay. take? How's that for okay. a hot that take? Is, uh, okay. Not in terms of. I will explain. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Not in terms of. Hold on, hold on a second. Not in terms of what it actively did during the time of Stalin as far as the purges. Not in terms of that, but simply in terms of there not being a check to power that the Politburo was towards the leadership during the USSR. But is that totalitarianism or is that just well, concentration that's one of power? Well, that's I what I see what he's saying. That's one if person mean, being okay, able to wield power. Can I just I'm add not, some since you were addressing something I said I'm in checking. my opening yeah. remarks? Um, you know, I wasn't saying that anything about Russia and the Soviet Union are, quote, the same. I was simply noting the discrepancy in how previous American presidents have rhetorically interchanged with leaders of the Soviet Union in contrast to what Biden has done in upping the ante such that he's actively accusing Putin of genocide and calling him a war criminal and basically calling for his government to be toppled. I, mean, I think that's just a, a, a difference in approaches over the ages that's worth 
dwelling upon and in noting that comparison i'm not drawing any kind of similarities or dissimilarities between the russia and the soviet union except on this narrow uh, point of the dealings between the two uh, respective leaders yeah, that, I mean, I think is a bit overstated. I mean, I, I know what President Biden said during the speech in Warsaw. And I mean, if you don't want to chalk it up as some kind of improv Biden gaffe, I mean, apparently it wasn't in the text of the actual speech. Uh, you know, I mean, any comments about his mental health aside, I mean, at the end of the day, that's one comment that they felt fit for whatever reason to retract. Well, it was in a formal to, speech in a foreign capital. I know, but I mean, compared to... Speech, it wasn't just some off-the-cuff remark. President Reagan making it a point repeatedly to call the Soviet Union an evil empire. I mean, but he, you know, even Reagan uh, didn't personalize it about. Well, his... I will say you are right that yeah. it's more personalized now with Putin, and that actually does get to sort of what I think Lev was saying. Well, I think it's it's kind of an interesting point. This is sort of an aside. You could definitely say I'd say that Russia today is a personalist kind of dictatorship, whereas the Soviet Union was at least after Stalin, it was an institutional sort of tyranny. So you could say, yeah, I mean, it. it's a little different, I guess. It's kind of hard to... Hmm. Well, know, let, it, let me put it this Bresh, way. You know, Bresh, well, I, the Soviet I, I state like, acknowledged well, the problem. Well, I mean, okay, but like, what, you know, whatever the difference in kind of the well, governance a little different, structures I mean, in, of if Russia versus the Stalin, Soviet Union... Though, you know, I mean, but whatever, kind of whatever the difference is in the orientation of the Soviet yeah. Union and Russia t today as states, mm. I think it's pretty easy to acknowledge that the tenor uh, rhetorically that's been espoused by the current president about the leader of Russia uh, differs drastically from what had been the norm over the course of the Cold War. Is that not true? Just don't know that I would say that. I mean, I talk about one reference. Well, that that, was, I, 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 did, did, did a U.S. president ever accuse a head of the Soviet Union of committing genocide? Uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of genocide, I mean, that's in terms of like you know public announcement, in terms of like public speech. Mm. I mean, uh, in terms of the way that the United States has discussed what the I think we know, but I think it would be thing in history well we do have a comparison we do have a comparison with adolf I, I have an answer wait 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 we do have a comparison with adolf hitler i mean i don't want to be the guy who keeps bringing those Lev, things austrian in. painter for the algorithm we can't say on youtube austrian painter all right go for it bastia yeah i just wanted to kind of go back and forth a little bit with, with michael honest i uh i mean i i get what you're saying i'm not aware of any kind of reference like that but i mean i think that kind of the tenor of a Reagan's administration, kind of the discussion of uh, nuclear exchange between the two powers. I mean, I, I just, it's hard to really say that compared to Joe Biden in one speech, right after what was revealed, I think to be, you know, some pretty deplorable you know, murder in the formerly occupied, uh, formerly Russian occupied parts of Eastern Ukraine. It just, I think that's just really overstated to say that that's a unique tenor. I also think it's a little strange to really kind of say that anything else about the war is particularly unprecedented, in, at least in Cold War terms. The one thing I'd say that is a little unprecedented is that we're in Ukraine, which is like, a, you know, in, in Europe as opposed to, you know, maybe in Africa or Asia. But other than that, like Korean War, Vietnam War, Soviet pilots were shooting at American pilots. Now they lied and claimed, you know, that in the Korean War claimed to be Chinese pilots. In Vietnam War, they didn't even come with a pretext. They just did it and then denied that it ever happened. So, you know, in, in previous wars, the Soviets have gone even more boldly and, and directly in, in terms of engagement. That's not to say, of course, that the Soviet Union and Russia are the same or anything, but if we're thinking about 
precedents and former kind of proxy type engagements. I wouldn't exactly call Ukraine a proxy war, you know, given that Ukraine is not really a proxy. It's a country. You assisting. wouldn't call Ukraine a proxy war? The logic war? is sort of the same. I wouldn't call it a proxy war in the sense that, like, this is a country that we control and and uh, and dominate uh, in the same way that say, do, uh, the administration of say South Vietnam. Not, you know? I mean, if you mean by the term proxy war, um, you know, just a, okay, a couple of things before I lose track hmm. on the issue of just presidential rhetoric. Um, you know, I don't want to get too bogged down in that because it's only one component of the overall sort of bilateral relationship. But, you know, you mentioned Reagan, you know, famously or infamously declaring that the Soviet Union was the evil empire. But notwithstanding that, a couple of years later, he met personally with uh, Gorbachev on numerous occasions and they came to agreements on, you know, armed control treaties, which they know, had the IMF, which just abrogated a few years ago under Trump. Um, but that was, you know, one of Reagan's uh, brainchilds mm. um, toward the end of that. his tenure. And can you imagine today uh, Biden and Putin getting together personally to forge yeah. some kind of diplomatic arrangement? It's hard to fathom that at this point. Well, um, well that's, that's why, real, real quick. If I may interject. Wait, wait, I got I got to interject first. I really think okay. you know, right. I should go back and forth a little bit more. Here. I got to say one thing, Bastiat, and then you are free to go back and forth. Because okay. I said, no, Lev, I think no, 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 hold on. Far more reasonable I know than you are, Lev. I can't believe that. He's, he's being extremely reasonable, I understand. I just want to say one thing real super quick, and it is that the comparison that I would make, I know some people see it as a cringe comparison. I don't care. I don't give a shit. I would say that the better comparison would be if Biden or some American president would sit down with somebody like Adolf Hitler, for example. And I know people are going to say, oh, my God, oh. how could you compare the two? But in terms of having a one man rule and having it be expansionist, that is a very different strategy than was employed by the USSR during the time of Gorbachev. So already the United States was looking towards the USSR as potentially turning over a new leaf and becoming a very different kind of country than it was during the time of Stalin. That's all I wanted to say, Bastiat, go for it. Right. Well, look, I guess I, I would just say that, uh, let's see, we were talking about the uh, the uh, Cold War. Oh, yeah. So, Michael, yeah, you make the point. Yeah, it's hard to imagine this with Putin. Well, it's kind of hard to imagine that with Putin. But then again, at the same time, while, uh, you know, a, a couple of years, you mentioned a couple of years after what Reagan said, you know, all of his rhetoric. And of course, he had a whole career of being you know, very hard and so and very, very much so part of his election campaign and all that. You know, he did some of these very notorious ads about how the Russians are fair and you can't trust them and all that. Um, but you know, shortly after that, even uh, you're, you're right. He comes to these arms control agreements with the Soviets. He's doing that at the same time that he is he is arming the Mujahideen to kill Soviet soldiers in Afghanistan. Uh, so the idea that you know countries like the United States and and Russia are not able to to do business and negotiate. I mean, during a situation like this, I, I just I don't think. Well, that's is there really any evidence the that it's happening now? I mean, so oh. just a, a, a couple of other things. Um, you know, first on the question hmm. of whether this constitutes a proxy war. I, I recognize that it's sort of a nomenclatural question, um, but I do think it's important in the sense of just clarifying what we're dealing with in terms of policy. Uh, my experience in discussing this kind of narrow issue with people is that they tend to think, and I think, you know, Basia, you sort of articulated this, that by using the term proxy war, you're denying the agency of the Ukrainians or suggesting that they're being unduly controlled by external forces and, you know, don't have autonomy to want to wage the war in the way that, that they see fit. But of course, a proxy war need not imply that. 
uh, a proxy war can simply be that the U.S. is attempting to attain certain objectives separate and apart from whether Ukraine itself is victorious or fends off Russia for um, to, you know, to whatever end. And the U.S. officials have been abundantly clear that that is the intention. I mean, when Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense, went on his secret mission to Kiev with Antony Blinken, the secretary of state, a few weeks ago, you probably recall what he said. And this sort of made, made a little bit of a splash. But he said that the intention of U.S. policy was to, quote, weaken Russia uh, militarily so that it can no longer uh, engage in actions akin to the Ukraine invasion. So if the U.S. is attempting to achieve that objective by way of its facilitation of warfare in Ukraine, then that's almost a classic definition of a proxy war. You know, I was on uh, Tucker Carlson's show in March, and I know a lot of people think it's a morally abominable thing to even go on Tucker Carlson. Well, I think it's based, actually. Okay. Um, uh, Yeah, well, I don't don't know that I would use the word base, but I agree that it's a prudent thing to do, at least for me, because Tucker Carlson is one of the vanishingly few people in the kind of corporate media sphere who allows for a diversity of views on subjects such as um, Russia related foreign policy issues or whatnot. And I use the term proxy war just in service of making a larger point about something uh, else in that appearance. And I was inundated with denunciations from people claiming that I was parroting Russian, Russian talking points, including Media Matters, this, you know, phony watchdog, quote unquote, organization that is run out of the uh, Democratic Party sort of institutional apparatus in D.C. They were saying, you know, this was, you know, my, my statement there was just more evidence that Tucker Carlson is uh, peddling Kremlin propaganda or whatnot. But the irony being that the first time I heard that term spoken publicly um, by anybody of stature was uh, from Leon Panetta, the Defense Secretary and CIA Director under the Obama-Biden administration. Um, He said, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, it's a proxy war. And I'm not sure why Leon Panetta would be lying about that. So do you think that he's just gravely mistaken? Or maybe as the guy who once ran the Pentagon and the CIA, he has some insight into the actual nature of the policy here? No, I mean, I, if, if that's the definition, I mean, sure. But then that would suggest that any time the United States helps a country defend itself, I mean, the United States is engaged in a proxy war because ultimately the United States, like any other country in the world, is only engaged in you know whatever it does out of you know self-interest, even well, if it's self-interest very much overlaps. So, I mean, if that's kind of the term, I get it. But that's sort of a, a term that is, you know, I guess mm-hmm. that's fine. That's just a term well, that's sort of a well, clinical as opposed to one that, you know, as I interpreted your use hmm. as sort of... Um, you know, casting aspersions. Well, Michael, do you believe in there being a possible win-win situation where, let's say, the United States would have a new trade partner and at the same time, when a country's invading another one, the United States comes to its aid? Why is that necessarily seen as a bad thing? Um, I'm sorry, could you restate that? Sure. Why would you say that it is seen as a bad thing when... These uh, comments occasionally distract me as they're... Oh, I would just put a piece of tape over it. I wouldn't worry about it. Everybody subscribe, by the way, now that I have the floor. So what I'm trying to get here is that there is this idea that the NATO expansion, more countries going into this uh, Western-leaning alliance, that that is somehow symbolic of all the worst aspects of western civilization as people talk about you know whether it's certain things that are going on in education certain things that may lead people to believe that we're going into some kind of a totalitarian um you know technocratic state great reset whatever 
beyond those things, though, I don't know what's so wrong about having countries that want to be part of the Western sphere, that want to be aided by the West in defense against an enemy that wants to take them over. What, why is it so wrong for the West to intervene in this case and to help these countries out? That's, that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Well, I mean, first of all, I wouldn't invoke ideas like, you know, Great Reset or this sort of more far-flung theories that you uh, seemingly attach to people who have reservations about this kind of Western hegemony. Um, but I would say that if you're talking about the propagation of military influence, and we're not just talking about like soft power or, you know, uh, liberalization of trade or whatever, I mean, then those are separate discussions. But in terms of actual raw military power, which is what the U.S. is exerting here in Ukraine, it's not that it's wrong per se. I wouldn't put it that it's wrong per se for Ukraine to seek that assistance. But given that the U.S. is the leading military superpower in the world and it's the prime mover of NATO, which Russia, you know, rightly or wrongly, states that it regards as an existential threat, uh, then doing this constant ratcheting up by way of a proxy war, and I know that term is not wholly accepted, um, in Ukraine, but brings us to a situation that, you know, from the outset of the war, a lot of people who are otherwise extremely hawkish on Russia, like Marco Rubio, were saying, you know, this is the most dangerous period in world history for decades, at least since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that should be jarring. Um, that should, I think, demand of us much uh, circumspection in what is prudent and how uh, the our government, uh, meaning the U.S. government, uh, conducts itself in this situation. There doesn't seem to be any prudence along those lines at all. I mean, there's hardly even any debate. I mean, I commend you for hosting this you know, debate-ish session. Um, but within the sort of uh, mainline uh, sectors of the media, there's basically no dissension at all permitted on this. And if anybody does raise a point of concern about, for example, the provision of $40 billion of additional aid uh, with hardly any debate or uh, consideration, then they're automatically castigated as somehow, you know, pro-Putin or implicitly that means they're kind of extreme right wing or uh, somehow, you know, stealthily pro-Trump or whatever the sort of ridiculous label that would be slapped upon them is. Um, and I think the, uh, that climate is kind of conducive, the climate that's, that's been fostered, and it's bipartisan. I think the sort of crazier parts of it probably emanate from the Democratic side at this point, because at least there's a slightly more um, variety of opinion amongst the Republicans, although it's still sort of bare minimum on, on that in that party as well. Um, uh, the, the climate that's been fostered is not at all conducive to the kind of circumspection that would, I think, people, most people would agree, should be exercised given the gravity of the situation, according to people like, I mean, even Joe Biden. I mean, you mentioned, you know, uh, Bastiat said in his opening statement that somehow Biden wasn't um, responsible for escalation because he said that he didn't want to start World War III. Well, that's a pretty low bar, right? I mean, it used to be the case not too long ago that even talking about the notion of World War III would have been extremely jarring and disturbing. Like it was hard, too much of an abstract idea to even really talk about tangibly. And so for Biden 
to say that Biden hasn't escalated because he at least superficially has said that he wants to avoid World War III kind of set up a situation in the U.S. discursively, kind of in conjunction with this whole with that no fly zone debate, which I agree sort of has tapered off. Um, that you know anything short of that, anything short of just wholesale initiation of World War III, doesn't actually amount to an escalation. Whereas every week in the U.S., there's another kind of gradation of escalation that keeps mounting. And setting like creating yeah. a certain momentum mm -hmm. that is going to be extremely difficult to ever rein mm -hmm. back, kind of comparable, mm -hmm. I think, potentially well, boss, to how respond, World, War, World War One. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I just don't accept the comparison. First of all, the escalation was done by the Russians, who escalated every time they inched one of their tanks or a battalion of their infantry a little farther into Ukraine. Right? Every advance of the Russian military is escalation. Every pushback of the Russians back into their corner is de-escalation. Because that prevents the Russians from expanding the war to a wider sense. The United States has repeatedly, and it is very important to drive this home, not just once or twice, not inconsistently, but has consistently said, no American troops, no American planes, no direct American involvement. And that is something that is, has been consistent. I mean, you may say it's a superficial commitment, but it seems like it's a pretty clear commitment. It is also very hard to imagine that even if you might imagine kind of the most... Uh, most terrible so. things about the American government, its interests, that it really feels that there's something to be gained through direct war with Russia, especially when the, the whole policy of the, the national defense establishment prior to last, uh, maybe the last year or two, was to, to pivot, you know, focus, you know, the long-awaited pivot to, to Asia, to focus on China, right? I'm sure there is, there is, there is relatively little interest by comparison. In, uh, in some kind of long-term uh, final reckoning with Russia, which in any event is no longer a, 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 a Soviet-level uh, threat. Its, it's, its threat is primarily in the fact that it is still uh, able to spoil and, and to hurt people and cause damage, even though it can't really, uh, you know, it, it, this war seems to have demonstrated, it seems to have a very difficult time achieving, uh, achieving tangible military objectives. It can still... Uh, foment conflict, they can still uh, attack and aggress and mm. well, they just as took it has continued to do. Mm. So well, the, the, the U.S. Uh, has, by contrast, done uh, what it has traditionally done in other sorts of conflicts in the past that are like this. It has provided weapons, training, assistance, has refused to provide American troops. It has been very clear about that. And while it has engaged in some forms of isolation, sanctions, you know, like in the 80s with the Olympic boycott and some of the other diplomatic moves after the Afghan war, uh, after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, uh, you know, the United States has not broken off relations uh, with Russia. In fact, it's continued to work with Russia on the deal with Iran. Now, mm -hmm. how well that will pan out in the long term remains to be you know, seen. But the fact is that even as the United States is engaged in this proxy war, and I'd, I'd agree with that from a clinical sense, I'm not denying that, I was... Uh, taking issue with the way it seemed like mm. you were presenting it. But uh, even as it's done that uh, in Ukraine, it has uh, still been working with Russia and Iran. Uh, so the notion that this is particularly unprecedented, I don't think so. The one thing I would say that is a little different here is that we're in Europe as opposed to Asia. But that itself is something that, that makes the American role even more important. Because what the United States is doing in its, in, its, uh, in its work here with its allies to keep Ukraine supplied and give Ukraine the tools that it needs to defend itself for so long as it chooses is uh, to prevent the Russians from expanding their conflict to, to other parts of Europe. The Russians attacked uh, Georgia. They leveled Chechnya before that. They attacked Ukraine in 2014, the seizure of Crimea, the seizure of the, mm -hmm. the separatist uh, areas, uh, you know, the, 
the uh, Tra- uh war in Donbass. Transnistria. So, and of course, Transnistria. Yeah, and thanks for the, the tip on that. Transnistria in 1993, like I mentioned, in, mm. in Moldova. Yeah. So, you know, the the, uh, the American role, I think, has been helpful uh, in preventing what uh, you know, the last hundred years have, have shown is uh, just this general notion that when Europe catches fire, uh, America trying to stay aside ultimately only leads to more problems down the line and uh, the requirement that America commit even more treasure and eventually its own blood to, to try and, and stop the conflict. Because un- unfortunately, it seems like uh, American experience in the last two centuries have shown that, that America uh, is eventually dragged into these kind of conflicts uh, one way or another. What we're doing in Ukraine, I think, by keeping the Russians uh, from, from overrunning the country is helping ensure that we don't have to have some direct conflict with Russia down the line if they try to attack states or poland or if they started attacking american shipping like too many unhappy countries have attempted to do in the past whatever uh this is uh, i think good policy in in the long-term sense for america and it happens to overlap completely with the interests of at least the democratically elected ukrainian government and by all accounts the uh, the feelings of most of the ukrainian people who do want to resist mm -hmm. the attempted russian Uh, conquest of their country democratically elected government that was pretty much well Sorry, you go ahead, Michael. Then I will have a longer time. Well, yeah, just you know, a couple things. I mean, you sort of repeatedly reference Biden's putative assurances that there will be no boots on the ground, and cited that as an example of him supposedly de-escalating rather than escalating. First, I would just note that there's a long history of U.S. presidents claiming that they're going to resist pressure to deploy. U.S. troops in a variety of scenarios, and then, you know, push comes to shove, and they ultimately end up doing so. And just a few examples off the top of my head is Obama in the, during the ISIS war said there would be absolutely no uh, boots on the ground in Syria, and there, of course, were boots on the ground ultimately in Syria, then including some that sustained casualties. Um, the uh, early stages of the Vietnam War, I mean, that was dominated by this whole pretension that Eisenhower was just sending advisors and they were just doing training. And of course, you know, as anybody who's even glancingly familiar with that whole chronology knows, it escalated from there. I mean, it wasn't overnight. It spread over the course of years. I mean, we're only two and a half months into this now. So I don't think anybody should have much confidence that those initial assurances on the part of the president about supposedly resisting U.S. deployment of troops are going to hold. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But given the track record of American presidential rhetoric, it's not something that I would have much confidence. And even Woodrow Wilson uh, campaigned for office initially when he first ran on keeping the U.S. out of the war. And then there was a giant about face on that issue. And of course, Wilson then brought the country into the war. Um, you know, that's you mind, going too far back in history. Can we kind um, of discuss some of these examples back and forth? You know, because I know we've kind of been each oh, going yeah. on a little longer. So oh, yeah, yeah, if, yeah, if sure, that's okay ahead. with you, you know. Uh, so I get what you're yeah. saying, but there are a couple of things I'd say about that. First of all, the... the uh, President Obama, just as a small aside in Syria, I mean, President Obama uh, you know, made the opposite mistake in Syria when he said, you know, we'll draw a red line and if there's a chemical attack, you know, we will uh, we will go in. And of course, when the chemical attack yeah, happened, that was a separate, he, he refused. Event, yeah. That was a sim- that was a separate thing. But I think that's also a little a little more of a complex issue because ISIS turned out to be something that spread across borders. And I, I think it's a little more complex. I think the Cold War analogies, though, are, are a little more interesting. You are right that, for example, uh, Eisenhower, uh, I think was the first president in Vietnam, had no 
interest in sending American troops there. Uh, Kennedy, I think, at one point prior to his assassination, had talked about or mused on the possibility of removing the advisors we had there. And then, you know, before you know it, uh, the Vietnam War has uh, tens of thousands of Americans being drafted to, to fight there. I do think, though, that there are a couple of important differences between that and the other kind of uh, Cold War uh, wars. First of all, uh, they were the exceptions opposed to the rule. America provided a lot of supplies and assistance to a lot of countries around the world during the Cold War. And direct involvement of American troops was the exception, not the not the rule during the Cold War. And it's also worth noting that, of course, fighting North Vietnam or fighting North Korea, uh, you know, those are that's a, a world apart from, say, fighting Russia directly, uh, you know, nuclear power directly. So I think I would trust the the word of the president on that a little more than than at baseline, if only because it's pretty clear that the risks there, as we all seem to seem to agree, are a lot different. And then finally, Woodrow Wilson is actually kind of an interesting example because I think Woodrow Wilson and uh, you know, maybe you could argue a little bit about FDR, but I don't even know if I'd argue with him. But certainly Woodrow Wilson really tried to stay out of the war. Uh, that was his whole campaign, uh, his whole campaign promise. And the Germans had to start blowing up American ships. And then in the end, they threatened uh, to join uh, with Mexico to invade the southern, uh, southeastern, southwestern United States and, and retake Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. That's what it took to bring America into World War I. And it, it took a while to bring America into World War II as well. So the notion that, that uh, this country is just kind of always chomping at the bit to send troops, I just, I don't think it's fair or really accurate. And I think it's kind of a reflection of sort of the feelings of of a lot of people toward maybe the Bush administration and its mistaken use of military forces around the world, rather than a real reflection of, you know, American foreign policy for the last hundred years. Well, I don't think that most Americans are necessarily chomping at the bit to deploy troops in Russia, although it sort of depends how you ask the polling question. Um, there is large scale support seemingly by, on a bipartisan basis for at least the arms provision component of U.S. policy, whereas there's less seeming support for the option of deploying uh, troops if it were to mean uh, war. Um, uh, but I think that it's probably also the case that there are divisions within the administration, the national security apparatus, about how eager they are to really fully uh, escalate even further the U.S. commitment to Ukraine. I mean, maybe Biden is probably less inclined toward that personally than some others. I mean, it's always sort of a grab bag of people with different predilections in this mm. in, in, in any given administration, given the, the uh, expansive sort of scope of the uh, national security apparatus. Mm. Um, but the, po the point is, you know, once the ball is rolling, um, it, the, it, it kind of is hard to reverse the momentum. And the momentum now, I think it's pretty clear, and I don't know how this could be disputed, uh, is that um, it is one of ineluctable escalation without any desire, it appears, to uh, reverse course at all. Um, and so, you know, even, the, even if there might not be this kind of burning desire on the part of various Biden administrations to launch the war, uh, that doesn't mean that the war couldn't ultimately uh, be launched, given maybe some incident takes place that we can't foresee at the moment. Uh, there's some miscommunication. You know, Russia decides to go further than it already has in attacking these supply lines of 
U.S. or NATO uh, weapons being transported into the country. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't be blasé about that uh, potentiality, at least given this overall trajectory of just more and more escalation. I mean, where is the diplomatic effort? Where is anything mm. that is in t geared toward reducing hostilities rather than increasing them? And just one last point. Um, I think it actually is worth uh, digging in a little bit semantically on how Basia defines the term escalation. Notice what he did, did and it's kind of an interesting bit of lawyerly uh, jujitsu that I commend him for. But he's saying it's de-escalatory to escalate the intensity of the warfare that the U.S. is facilitating because of some overarching objective that that warfare purportedly achieves, right? So he's saying it's not escalation for the U.S. to provide more and more high-grade weaponry to a warring party that's waging a war, where I think most people in a commonsensical way, if you ask them, is it escalatory to hand grenade launchers and fighter jets and missile systems to a warring party when that party wouldn't have otherwise had that uh, material? Um, they would say, yeah, that's escalatory. But because the U.S. sort of wants to have this um, conceit that they're not escalating, it's just Russia that's escalating. So, of course, I would acknowledge, and I think you have to be crazy not to acknowledge this, that when Russia launched the preemptive invasion on February 24th, that was an escalation. It doesn't preclude the U.S. from then subsequently also doing its own escalation. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, I, I, and I think it, there's only you can only obscure that if you do this sort of mental gymnastics mm. around what escalation yeah. actually is. Well, I, have a, I, have yeah, I, I just don't I just don't accept that framing of it. I, in fact, I don't think most people would if you if you thought about it. I mean, what you're what you're talking about here, if, if you've got Ukraine without weapons from uh, America and its NATO allies is a country that is for all its bravery at a fundamental disadvantage from a country, you know, Russia, that has attacked it and is using everything that, that Michael described and equivalents to everything that America has provided uh, Ukraine. Perhaps not as good in terms of quality, you know, because of Russian weapons, but still, you know, grenade launchers, missiles, all that, all that kind of stuff. What the United States is doing is, if anything, evening things out with the Russians. It's not escalating, though. It's providing weapons to the Ukraine but so they can defend themselves. It's no more an okay, escalation. So let's, let's no more escalation if you see somebody being general. attacked and you provide them the means to defend themselves. Okay, but, but wait, wait. Maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is uh, uh, needlessly kind of nitpicky, uh, but I actually think it's worth, uh, again, drilling down a little further just to clarify some of the principles here. Um, so, you know, if, if I hand a howitzer to a military unit that wouldn't have otherwise had the howitzer, and my intent in handing them that howitzer is to facilitate their ability to wage more intensified warfare, have I taken an action that escalated the severity of the warfare that's being yeah. undertaken or de-escalated the severity of the warfare? No. Because I think I my whole point in giving the howitzer to the unit was so that Escal uh, warfare would be escalated the in, a, in a direction that I find to be felicitous. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I thought you... Yeah, uh, yeah the warfare is already intense. The Russians are already bombarding the Ukrainians with howitzers. The Ukrainians now have the ability to bombard back, but that's self-defense. We wouldn't call that escalation. Mm. Not in any kind of normal context in our lives. It would be like trying to frame you know, self-defense in ordinary life as a kind of escalation. If somebody happens to help you defend yourselves. No, you're defending yourselves. I think you have a right to, to self-defense generally. And the fact that somebody no longer has uh, the, the full run of the mill to be able to kill you with impunity... 
or or to have an easy time killing you. That doesn't mean that uh, that that well, you've escalated things by fighting back on equal terms. I have a question indeed, for both of you. Yeah, held yeah, back from giving, the problem, the problem is no, you're framing it. I think there are, I think there are limits to these analogies that have to do with like personal behavior. So like sometimes people mm. will bring up the analogy like, oh, you're if you're criticizing the U.S. policy, you're blaming the woman for wearing a short skirt if she's raped or something. Oh, so, but so I, I think there are limitations to this metaphor. But like, let's just go with the metaphor for a second. Right. If somebody breaks into my house, they aggress upon me. Uh, but if then some uh, my neighbor runs into the side door and hands me a bazooka to take out the intruder, I think the neighbor escalated the amount of violence that wow. that's a good neighbor. The neighbor has reestablished the event, right? Yeah, the, no, the, the neighbor has reestablished or done something to help reestablish the status quo. The American position is not the conquest of Russia. But the status it is quo wasn't that there's no, a giant regime. Right, one Russia at a time. One at a time, gentlemen. Wait, one I at a time. Think, I think I haven't. Okay, go for it, Gio. The, pr the problem, the fundamental issue I think that we're having is that the framing of the war in general and what led up to it, that is the big philosophic issue here. In the sense that, is it a true unwarranted invasion and aggression by Russia and people using the G word, which I won't say for YouTube algorithm purposes. Um, we have a complex history between Ukraine and Russia. We have, in my estimation, direct interference from 2014 onwards in Ukraine, even before that. From America, you could say that Maidan was a legitimate, democratically elected government. Probably not. There was interference by Kolomoisky in tandem with Victoria Newland and so forth. Um, but furthermore, the I think we have to establish what in sort of the justification that Putler uh, has given for the invasion. Now, Lev, you and Putin are both from St. Petersburg, right? That's Our, right. Yeah. Now, Putin is very much the Russian equivalent of a boomer, in the sense that he believes in the sort of unification of the Russian territory, maybe not exactly like the Soviet Union, but I mean, that fantasy is gone now because we've seen that through help of Western Europe and so forth, that the Ukrainians, that they've established a sense of identity, whether you want to say it's fictitious or not, but it's certainly there. Now, in the beginning of the war, there was good evidence that they probably were going to escalate things in Donbass with ethnic Russians. That was one justification. Another is that repeatedly from the 1990s onwards, we have a situation where America unilaterally has interfered in the affairs of Russia and has, and even in the words of someone like an engineer of the economic policy for the 1990s, like Jeffrey Sachs saying in 1999 that there was one standard for Russia, there was one standard for all the other Eastern European countries. So Russia, in the very speech that Putin gives at the beginning of the war, he says that Western aggression and expansion of NATO is a direct result of what's happening. What he wanted was to pursue an issue of neutrality with Ukraine, like he has with Belarus. <laughs> now, you could say that Belarus is basically a puppet of the Kremlin. But I think that to frame it as a pure aggression of Russia and not the sequential uh, issues that Russia has with the West is sort of a fallacy. Yeah. Because it's the philosophic debate between are we going to accept that the liberal hegemony the global American empire is the only game in town and that it's the end of history and that there is an eschatology to the ideology that Washington operates under. Or do we accept that inevitably there will be a multipolar world Kill. and that the real politique of the situation will prevail? Kill, that is anything you just said justify the invasion of Ukraine. I don't even think Michael would say that. He and I might, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I think, in I think he and I might differ in terms of like whether America could have done more to uh, facilitate peace. But it sounds like you're saying, in essence, that the invasion was justified. I don't know. If that, I don't think that's your position, bit. Michael. I don't know how anything you've just said 
And correct me if I'm wrong. But, but are you saying? But you said that this is not a part would wait, justify. Let me find well, I think. I, I, I wait, think wait, wait, wait. Let me finish. Let me finish. What, what among it does? But I'm saying. I'm saying. You're from talking about the global American empire. What does that have to? What are you even talking? I, I think. About? I well, think, think where I. Wait, what? Direct existential threat to the Russian uh, position among the world stage. All right. No. All right, can, well, the Russian, there you go. The Russian's saying, position on the world stage. Hold on, everybody. It's run by an, an incompetent leftist right, who has... Yes, well, Basia, Basia. Hold on, I got to answer this one. Guys, guys, everybody, hold on. If you think America's leadership is as low in quality, is that in Russia? Yes, they are. Look, I think we're talking in two different... All right, Basia, I got to answer this one. Wait, wait, hold on. Okay, everybody's talking over each other. I got to... I got Geo, Geo, hold on, please. Geo, Geo, please. Geo. What you're saying is that Russia, one of the poorest countries in the world is run as poorly as the United, or is run as well as the United States. It just doesn't track with anything anybody would think. Nobody would think I can't, that. I can't see the American leadership from the Bush administration onwards as being anything but competent, but that's... No, but but again, I hate saying relative to what, but I, I, know, but but I would say that. relatively not as poor as Ukraine because of the decisions that Putin no. has made. Okay, Gio, hold on. I have, to, I have to answer this one, and this partly is what we were talking before about with Bastiat. So there is this idea that Russia is kind of like a Mary Sue character where you don't really take into account the things that Russia has done over time, including during the time of Boris Yeltsin, to elicit a very different response from the United States and from the West and NATO than it would have should Russia have taken a different course in its uh, trajectory. So, for example, we talked about the uh, uh, taking over of Transnitria from Moldova during Len Yeltsin's leadership. There was also the carpet bombing in Chechnya. So there were very, not to mention the amazing amount of corruption there were things that you could take a look at as somebody who was from either the clinton administration or the biden uh, biden or the uh, bush senior administration where it may have taken a different turn maybe there could have been this union together with the united states and america holding hand in hand if certain things would have been improved upon this is why nato for example has certain things that you have to go through in order to qualify for it which is why uh, ukraine for instance with these eastern regions always causing a lot of problems that's that was one of the main reasons why it was never in nato to begin with so the idea that i'm getting here geo is that russia had a lot of things that had to clean up and it was only getting worse at that point before it would have been able to live up to these promises well quote-unquote promises that only one administration uh, made to it at that time when it was talking about not expanding nato and first of all it didn't even have the power to say whether or not nato would be expanded that would be up to the countries as far as whether they want to go well, into essentially doing the kremlin's work for it all right because by this religious fervor by by well, using borderline nazi michael germany tactics yeah michael 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 uh, go russia, for it the sort of russia phobia that's My, michael Yes. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, where I do think that there is some value in the context that Geo was trying to elucidate there is, at least by my lights, not providing any justification per se for the invasion. And I think uh, any invasion that is launched on an aggressive basis is not justified, um, whichever country initiates it. Um, but that it kind of uh, deepens one's understanding of the conditions that gave rise to the invasion, which is helpful because often what you'll hear in sort of cl a cliched reflexive way on the part of U.S. politicians or pundits is that they'll just kind of automatically refer whenever they're talking about the invasion to it as an unprovoked invasion. Now, 
Putin and other Russian officials are pretty clear that they at least are claiming that it was provoked. Now, you can dispute the legitimacy of their claims to have been provoked, or you can deny that the actions that they're citing are act, uh, actually do constitute genuine provocations. But I think this whole sort of um, knee-jerk uh, tick where uh, Congress people and whatever will just uh, by rote say that the invasion was wholly unprovoked kind of has the effect politically of placing the invasion in a sort of vacuum where, you know, the conflict started uh, out of nowhere on February 24th when Putin decided to invade. And therefore, nothing that the U.S. might have been complicit in in the run up could have had any effect whatsoever on his calculations. For example, and just to take a more recent example, um, then going back all the way to the early 90s about the NATO expansion and did James Baker give an assurance to Gorbachev that they wouldn't go one inch east or whatever. Um, even kind of bracketing that, it, it is the case that over the course of the Trump and Biden administrations, and this is sort of ironic because if you look at popular liberal media, there's still this unwavering belief that Trump coddled Putin or he was even colluding with Putin or con a conspirator of Putin's. Uh, but sure enough, over the course of Trump's presidency, not only did he obviously uh, start the process of sending lethal weaponry to Ukraine, he signed off on the elevation of Ukraine to this sort of precursor status to full-fledged NATO membership. In 2020, NATO became, uh, Ukraine became what's called an enhanced partner of NATO, uh, which basically uh, sets the stage for them to uh, eventually uh, uh, complete their accession into a full NATO uh, member state status, should they pursue it and should, the, should NATO uh, invite it. Um, and on top of that, you know, so that's that's just 20, 2020. So that's just less than two years ago. And then uh, on top of that, if I was doing some research on this uh, recently, just to refresh my memory. Um, but you know, after the first Trump impeachment, which, you know, uh, funnily enough, revolved around Ukraine, it's sort of interesting how central this country is that it's somewhat obscure to most Americans' lives has become in our uh, daily uh, you know, existences. Uh, but after uh, the that, that first Trump impeachment, which when supposedly was this dramatic attack on democracy for Trump to have withheld uh, arms shipments to Ukraine, uh, even though no arms shipments actually ever were delayed, uh, just as a note, um, uh, Pompeo, the Secretary of State at the time, uh, rushed over to Ukraine to reaffirm America's commitment to its security. And he set in motion what was then concluded by Blinken in um, fall of last year. And they forged a brand new secure, so-called security partnership between the U.S. and Ukraine. And included in that partnership, including it in like the uh, the uh, document that accompanied it, that laid out the aims of the partnership, was a reaffirmation of what was decreed in 2008 at the NATO summit in uh, Bucharest, where it said that the intention of the U.S. And, and NATO was for Ukraine to become a full NATO member. So that was reaffirmed as recently as last fall by the Biden administration. So you know, you can say that, you know, maybe Putin uh, might, not, might, not, might not like that, but it doesn't constitute enough of a provocation to warrant an invasion. And I would probably agree in that I, I wouldn't regard it as a justification for the invasion, but to just strike all that from the record and just reflexively say it was totally unprovoked and there's nothing that the U.S. could have possibly done that might have 
uh, created the conditions that gave rise to this invasion, I think essentially has the function of uh, whitewashing a lot of the well, historical I, record I, on Before, this. before exactly. Bastiat, I have a question for Michael. Exactly. I have one question for really... Michael first. Okay. Okay, here's my yeah. question. Sorry, Bastiat, real quick. My question for Michael is, what would you have done if you were in the place of the American government at the time? Uh, because I think the uh, fear is that if certain things are not done in order to defend these countries from countries that have demonstrated time and time again to be incredible aggressors, then those countries are going to, just like what happened in Georgia, they're going to see, you know what, we can proceed further. There were tanks that were going into the capital of Georgia, even after southern Ossetia, before George W. Bush kind of put a stop to that. So the idea here is that it seems like this country of Russia seems to want to gain more and more and more and more, and unless something is done to prevent that, it's going to keep going. So what would be kind of like the other way of doing this, if not for all these things you mentioned with bringing Ukraine closer to uh, NATO? So uh, yeah, let me know. Well, it's funny. I just uh, recently read a book called Spoils of War by Andrew Coburn, which is very interesting and kind of gets into the history of these kind of moneyed interests that, for example, um, lobbied for NATO expansion throughout the 90s and... Um, other aspects of sort of expansion of the defense industrial base in the U.S. Um, but one anecdote that he relays based on uh, his uh, source, who was a former Bush administration official in 2008 during the Georgia war, was that apparently Bush uh, personally um, reprimanded uh, Shaka Saakashvili, who was the uh, leader of Georgia at the time during that war, and instructed him not to uh, press forward with any kind of uh, aggressive strike on Russia, because according to Bush, that could potentially result in World War III. So, you know, based on this whole kind of escalation uh, two-step that we're talking about in terms of the semantics of that term, um, you could say that because George W. Bush at that time warned against full-fledged escalation into World War III, that he somehow is de-escalating the situation, even though he just got out of a NATO summit in uh, 2008, where he allowed you know Cheney to run rampant and uh, express his longstanding dream of having uh, NATO fully in the American sphere of military influence, but uh, having Ukraine, rather, fully in the sphere of American uh, military influence, even though they knew that that would be a drastic provocation against Russia. I mean, even the current CIA, CIA director, William Burns, when he was ambassador to Russia, sent a memo back uh, homebound in 2008 and said that, you know, everybody knows that this is a firm red line for the Russian establishment, not just Putin, but people around him, including people maybe who are less, uh, who are more Western friendly, such as a Medvedev or whomever. Um, so this was well known, and yet they pressed forward with it anyway, again, as recently as last fall. So I don't know how you can just call that somehow not a provocation, even if you don't think it justified the war. Now, in terms of what if I would have done, well, number one, I wouldn't have run for office, so I have this decision-making power in the first place. I think people got to be somewhat messed up in the head to even seek this power, um, and it's not a role that I would want to be in. Um, and I'm not generally inclined to like just disperse advice to the people who preside over the uh, military military industrial complex. So I don't know what they would have done because uh, what I would have done because I never would have. Uh, I, I don't want. I don't accept many of the premises underlying the current national security state of the United States. So um, yeah, but if you, you know, if you hate well, the situation, I, I you, have, you have an alternate. You have an alternate view of what should have been done, right? Like you what, have an alternate. What should, what should have been done when exactly? Where, where, what what, 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 what should have 
have been done in general as far as a policy to de-escalate the tensions in uh, Russia. So in your opinion, for example... As of when? Is it this year or like last year? Well, we, we could take it all the way back from the beginning if you want, but more of the general idea that whatever the United States does to, let's say, encourage... And again, I think it's less the United States, it's more other countries that want to be a part of NATO. But whatever goes in that direction, according to you, would create more tensions between Russia and the rest of the countries around it. So what would you do to de-escalate that? It's not like uh, you would, if you were the United States, I don't know if you'd have the power to tell all these other countries after the fall of the USSR, like, hey, guys, don't join NATO. God forbid you make Russia mad. You know, like what exactly would, would be done in this case if the countries want to be defensive against uh, Russia? Well, you know, um I wasn't old enough to be politically conscious at the time, but I doubt if I were of age in the 90s that I would have been all gung-ho about NATO expansion given the uh, breadth of warnings that were being issued by everybody from you know, George Kennan, basically the founder of the U.S. Cold War strategy, to uh, you know, Chomsky, to Kissinger, to people across the ideological spectrum who probably wouldn't otherwise agree on anything who were saying, look, this is a bridge too far and is eventually going to lead us into some sort of confrontation with Russia. And they were right. I mean, their prophecies were actually right. So I think, you know, understanding that I probably would have not tried to enrich my buddies at uh, Raytheon or General Dynamics or Lockheed Martin or BAE or whatever, uh, because they want to enhance the quote interoperability of these new NATO member states and sell them a bunch of weapons and make a lot of money. That probably would not have been what I would be setting out to do. In terms of other stuff that I might have done to perhaps result in a better outcome that would be less riven with tension is that something that I actually did do contemporaneously from 2016 onwards, which was try to highlight how deranged the mania was around this whole uh, theory that now seems a bit quaint, but you may recall that U.S. politics was dominated for several years by the allegation that Trump had been installed illicitly into <laughs> office by Putin yeah. as a Manchurian candidate style uh, infiltrator. And I think that really also uh, poisoned the well in terms of American diplomatic relations. You even with Russia, you even had um, it, it being professed that it was going to be criminalized to have quote-unquote Russian contacts. I mean, the whole reason why mm. Mike Flynn had to resign as national security director was that he was supposedly lied, that he simply mm. had a meeting with a Russian, the Russian ambassador and said, look, we're not going to uh, let, hold off on escalating these sanctions that the Obama mm. administration... Oh, I want to make sure that we're getting a little bit into the weeds and, yeah. here. We're getting a little bit into the weeds. I, I, I want Marcia to respond. I, 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 I got to say, Lev, Gio, I mean, I it's impossible for he and I to go back and forth if we're just constantly going on tangents randomly you know so we gotta we gotta go one point at a time here don't we you know mm -hmm. so first of well, all that was if you're gonna talk about if you're gonna talk about like provocation all right provocation if you're if your point michael is that at the end of the day uh hey uh maybe we don't think it's a legitimate provocation okay i get your point but i mean i think it, it, as far as anything can be objective the notion that a country choosing its own military alliance, a defensive military alliance, choosing to be a member of a defensive military alliance is a legitimate provocation against Russia, a country that has historically conquered uh, all of its neighbors several times throughout its history, including most recently in the 20th century. The idea that this would be uh, a legitimate provocation, I think is ridiculous. I don't even think you would say that's a legitimate provocation, even if you might say, well, you know, we should understand though that that's how the Russians are gonna react but that's a different issue. It is one wait, thing to say. It is one thing wait, wait, to say. On, let let know, I'm trying to, trying to one at a time. No, 
don't want to chime in. It is one thing to say, hey, look, we have an idea of how the Russians will respond. It is another thing to say it is uh, the Russians are justified in responding this way. I can appreciate the idea that any sort of uh, uh, expansion of uh, American uh, influence, say, in Eastern Europe, would be interpreted by the Russians as uh, treading on their uh, sphere of influence that they feel entitled to. I don't think that means that they have a right to some sphere of influence there. I don't think that that's a legitimate feeling uh, on their part. I can understand, though, if you're saying, well, we should have known that they might respond in certain ways, maybe. But when somebody says this is an unprovoked invasion in the sense that there is no legitimate provocation, I think that's absolutely true. Now, it may be the case that we could say, well, you know, if we look back at the last 30 years since the fall of the Soviet Union, maybe there are things we would have liked to have done differently. For example, uh, the Bush administration pulled out of certain uh, um, uh, arms uh, limitation treaties in, you know, in ways that, you know, uh, were unilateral in ways that, you know, probably were not helpful in terms of needlessly deteriorating the relationship to pursue weapon systems that ultimately didn't go too far. You know, I could, I could, uh, I could see uh, uh, areas where I might objectively say that the United States contributed to a worsening of the relationship. But to say overall that America is, uh, and I'm not even sure you're saying this, but this seems to be sort of uh, almost by implication, uh, the idea that America overall uh, has provoked a conflict with Ukraine when at the end of the day, what the United States has done is supply Ukraine with resources, the political opportunity through keeping the door open at some point in the future to join NATO, in essence, through helping Ukraine realize its own uh, political uh, ambitions, not to attack Russia, but ultimately to defend itself from an attack by Russia that began in 2014 and has continued uh, uh, today only to, you know, to borrow a word, escalate in uh in uh, february of 2022 so um you know i i think that's one thing i want to say that that it, there is no legitimate provocation here you could say that there's a provocation from the russian point of view i don't think that's reasonable though given the way that uh, ultimately russia i think knows full well just as we all know that uh, there is not going to be any NATO attack on Russia. Russia is a nuclear power, and that obviously makes the thought of doing such a thing, uh, you know, incomprehensible. Just, just a ridiculous thing to imagine. I think instead the Russians understand quite reasonably that membership in NATO means that the Russians cannot attack a NATO member country because they invite the same kind of devastation. And as a result, when they talk about NATO expansion, they're not talking about it in the sense of feeling like they're threatened by NATO. They are frustrated by the fact that they no longer have as much authority to dominate their neighbors as they have dominated them over the last, gosh, a few hundred years. I mean, it's actually been a hundred years since the last time Ukraine waged a war of independence against Russia after the First World War. Russia attempted to conquer them and, and after several years finally succeeded. But that doesn't mean that you know Ukraine is some integral piece of uh, some Russian sphere that that country has a right to. Uh, it's, uh, so I think that's an important thing, first of all, just to Can say, I respond to that's that? not legitimate. It may be a provocation from the point of view of some mm. people who have a, a different geopolitical view that doesn't place any value on, uh, on a, you know, independent democratic Ukraine, but that does not make it a legitimate provocation. And frankly, I think the fact that somebody might look at NATO expansion and see that as, uh, as a source of enrichment alone, I think is also 
disingenuous. I mean, defense contractors. I didn't say it was enrichment alone. I said it includes an yeah. enrichment right. incentive, doesn't it? I, I think that's. I think that's. Uh, I, think, I mean, does anybody think, get again, enriched by NATO of, expansion? Who? I think who again, that's from? sort of casting aspersions. I mean, first of all, to say. Well, I mean, who okay, so from. I'm not casting aspersions. Just you asking are, as a matter think, of fact. So was Russia not? Wait, one at a time. One at oligarchs. Was Russia not looting? Have you looked at the one at a time, please? Defense companies lately. Yeah, yeah, defense companies. Yeah, they do trade stocks. Their stocks go up. Their stocks go down. They're not. Oh, they're actually particularly, particularly oh. well connected, oh. though, to uh, to to uh, can, the war. Can I, wait, wait, wait. Sorry. Fashion. But but when you say enrichment, the way it seemed to me was that you were casting NATO expansion as being when you described it sort of passively, as the purpose of it was enrichment. Of American value interests. judgment, I just as a, as a matter of fact. If you're saying that's just are one there, of are there are there are there interests that stand to profit from? Sorry, from no, no, Geo, we can't have yeah, people talking over each That is a comparatively though indifferent consideration compared to the much bigger issues of why countries would join an alliance like NATO or why the United States might, along with its allies, offer membership in NATO. Well, I mean, for example, these countries. Why, why it the does not defense companies in the U.S. that employ teams of lobbyists to run around D.C. advocating for their interests might be really in favor of more NATO expansion? Does it explain perhaps their motivation? And what, well, their motivation is one motivation among many. They're one interest group among okay. many. And we're not just talking about interest but groups in the United States. But enrichment could be part of we're their talking motivation, about interest right? interest groups in over 30 mm. countries. All right, I want that, to switch. If you're saying, is that a part of it? Sure, that's mm. a part of it. All right. And indeed, I okay, think that's great. a legitimate part of it. That was my we point. Want we want defense contractors to be able to make money so they can produce good weapon systems. The United States mm -hmm. doesn't well, have to worry that's about where you kind and of I seeing might be, maybe the differ a bit because I, don't think I we see do differ. I, I agree with Eisenhower. We really differ on the notion that we conflict. should not have the best weapon systems in the world if we're going to have a military. I mean, surely we'd at least want to be able to defend ourselves, even if we, you and I, might disagree on how extensive that military presence must, should be in the rest of the world. Presumably, we want to have at least the best stuff for ourselves. Well, I mean, I think a lot of these weapons programs are complete boondoggles and are gradually revealed to be as such over yeah. time. So, I mean, exactly. I'm not sure that I'm just going to give a blanket approval to anything that the, that, you know, uh, Lockheed Martin thinks is going to be in the U.S. Nat national uh, defense interest to uh, manufacture. But just to quickly go, go back to the point that you're making about, like, whether it's a legitimate provocation or not, or how do you distinguish between maybe Russia acknowledging that Russia believes itself to have been provoked, but it wasn't a legitimate provocation. I think there's sort of a, that's sort of a tricky uh, way to thing to disentangle there um, because, you know, I, partly it uh, stems from something that you actually said, Bastia, at the outset of your most recent remarks, which is that you said, you know, NATO is a defensive alliance. That's a cliche we hear all the time when uh, politicians in the U.S. and elsewhere try to defend the, you know, mission, so to say, of, of NATO. They say, you know, it's a defensive alliance. So how in the world could anybody potentially feel threatened by it or imperiled by it? And, uh, you know, I think that's pretty much just that a, a cliche. I mean, what was the, who was it defending? Who is NATO defending in Libya? I mean, who is it defending in Serbia? I mean, there are plenty. You're defending have Bosnian trust people from an attempted genocide by the Serbian state. But the, oh, you actually, you, I thought, I thought you when you say defensive, defensive, it means it's, you're, yeah, it's defending the peace of Europe from uh, the attempt by one regime to spell so, so a NATO member state in a place right? where the first one is. Yeah, it, it wasn't defending any NATO member states because by that logic, you can say that any 
one who needs defending anywhere in the world, NATO can come to their aid, right? Because I thought the whole point of what defensive means in this context is defending the NATO member states themselves. Yeah, and there was the no direct of... defensive interest in Serbia or I mean, what about Libya? What, what, what did it, how was it operating defensively there? I mean, I think it's quite clear that that when governments collapse and there's a large scale uh, you know, genocide or a large scale what NATO killing, member state was good? What, what, what genocide? What genocide? Libya, Libia, and, and gee, I'm trying to tell the microphone. Well, first of all, I've been muted, the, so that's yeah. I mean, yeah, because I there were three people speaking point. at once. So, I mean, you know, when when states, oh, I'm uniquely uh, muted though, because they were yeah, already states, speaking. Yeah, when states like that, I mean, collapse. Uh, Europe has faced uh, waves of refugees, and that causes all kinds of political instability. I mean, these are uh, areas right on the periphery of uh, NATO member states. I mean, if you want to say that it's not uh, defense in the sense of a military attack, well, that's also why Article Five was not invoked. I mean, that's a a, uh, a different kind of uh, agreement uh, among NATO members, but not exactly a NATO operation in the same way that, say, when the United States was attacked on 9-11, it invoked Article 5, and that was a clear attack on the United States. It led to a clear NATO response, as opposed to, um, you know, the, you know something a little more uh, general, where you're talking about, uh, well, some NATO members cooperate on a shared interest, and they use a NATO framework, but that's a you know, like Serbia or uh, Libya, that's a, a different kind of uh, a different kind of thing. What we're talking about with Russia is the risk of an attack uh, from the entire alliance against a country with 6,000 nuclear weapons. And that's just not going to happen. Because even in these uh, smaller situations you've described, that required NATO to go through its own uh, process. It you know, has a, a sent to this stuff somewhat democratically in its own kind of, uh, you know, voting fashion. Its members get a vote and all that. I mean, it, it, uh, that's just not going to happen, right? America's allies are not going to vote to go to war with Russia. It, it, they might, you know, with Libya, but war with Russia is an entirely different concept. Everyone knows that. The Russians know that, too. We all know that. We know that there is nobody in our country, and certainly not in Europe, who is actively hoping for, uh, uh, you know, our NATO countries to go to war with, uh, with Russia. We all know at this point now that Russia would be very quickly humiliated and would have to resort to nuclear weapons. So it's all right. Well, I got, I got to, okay, go on. Media, I mean, th th this is the fundamental point. I think the philosophic disagreement here is that what you're saying, you're approaching it from this sort of post-Westphalian legalistic framework where countries are their own contained units, but you are ignoring the externalities of the history between Ukraine and Russia, that region of the world being largely part of Russia and having ethnic Russians, at least half of the population in it. That is the huge problem that complicates the thesis that they are a totally 100% sovereign nation. Now, not so, I'm saying he's justifying Putin's, what he's, his actions he's committing, but I'm saying that the, the crime of that they just want to join NATO and so forth, I mean, this is ignoring the actual real political implications of the way that these alliances operate. This is what we're mm. saying. Now, that is the problem. Uh, as for the other point about... Um, I, I mean, I forget. I mean, this is very slippery debate. Well, it's a good thing. It's a good okay, thing, so actually. Let, that let, me, let, me oh, just, let oh. me just let me just say something really quick. All right. Um, I think your whole spiel there, which, again, was well constructed, uh, speaks to the clear elasticity in what is meant by this term defensive, right? Because I would think that would be assumed to generally mean when it's popularly, as it's popularly understood, to mean that that, that defensive in terms of defending NATO states that come under attack. Um, and to claim that applied somehow to Libya, I think is a massive stretch. 
Um, we even have recently Liz Truss, who I mentioned before, is the foreign secretary of the UK, is saying that NATO needs to come to the defense of Taiwan. So now we're going to the other side of the world, nowhere near the North Atlantic, to uh, apparently undertake yet another defensive mission. So if the, that, that concept of defense is so expansive that it can basically justify anything that the NATO member states want to do in terms of aggressive military action, then I think it kind of collapses into absurdity, which is why, uh, in terms of the provocation against Russia being legitimate or not, they clearly don't accept that NATO is a strictly defensive alliance. I mean, who is NATO arrayed against? Who is it defending against, if not Russia? Yeah, um, so when you're talking about the legitimacy or not of the provocation, I think if you are operating on the assumption that it is strictly defensive and would never dream of potentially encroaching on Russia at any time, then that sort of uh, the, resolving that question depends, uh, uh, hinges a lot on the uh, whole wider question of the legitimacy of the provocation. I mean, NATO constantly holds drills and exercises in direct proximity to Russia. There was a huge NATO uh, exercise just last summer that was, for example, in uh, a part of which, for example, took place in Estonia, which is on the Russian mm. border. Um, so, you know, if there are drills, I mean, drills taking place on your actual border, can you legitimately regard mm. that as a provocation? I don't know. I mean, it, what, would in, Poland be afraid? Certain would Poland be afraid of the United States invading too. it? But it's not crazy, is it? Well, would Estonia be afraid of the United States invading it? Would any of these countries that have their shit together, pardon my French, worry about the United States invading them? I think that this is a big problem here. They've where, already been invaded. Where, well, that's a whole different thing. Because when we were talking about invasion in terms of having more li uh, you know, liberal values, things like that, that's a whole other conversation which I don't want to get into right now, and I, which I support, by the way. But the idea that you have a country like Russia that's worried about NATO invading it. I could tell you this. If there was some kind of an operation later on to influence the votes or whatever, to influence people to have somebody replace Putin with somebody who would be more favorable for not having a dictatorship in Russia, I would be for that. I don't think common sense people would be against that whole idea. And it always comes back, whether we're talking about Russia or China, what are the things that people are the most concerned about with these countries doing? So let's say we imagine, for example, going with Michael's idea of de-escalating what would happen if for example i mean now it's too late but let's say for example in the beginning of this war what would have happened if the united states would have not done anything would have de-escalated would have lived up to the uh wet dream of uh, isolationists and would have just kept to its own being what would russia do that that's my question for michael Well, I mean, it, it's sort of a, in a way, it's an incoherently premised question because the U.S. has never been isolationist, especially with regard to Ukraine. Rather, in the lead up to this war, years in advance, it's been exercising its interventionist tendencies in Ukraine, which then kind of set the context for why Russia at least said that it, has, it chose to invade, and I've given examples of that with this, that security arrangement that was brokered last uh, 
fall. I mean, the U.S. had already been well on its way into essentially converting Ukraine into a de facto military outpost of the U.S. That's why they were holding these drills constantly and exercises on Ukrainian territory. That's why they keep constantly uh, talk about this supposed interoperability between the U.S. military and the Ukraine military so they could basically engage in joint oper um, operations together, including combat operations, as we're seeing now with this supposed intelligence sharing arrangement that the U.S. has with the Ukrainian military over the course of the war. So, I mean, I think um, I'm not sure what. No, but this is very I simple. Think, yeah. What would oh, Russia yeah. do the if there was less I mean, pressure on it? was not just isolation. I mean, how about just the U.S. choosing not to undermine every potential avenue for diplomatic accord, which they definitely did, at least once. Or let's play started. this out. What would happen then? What would happen if it would not undermine this diplomatic uh, situation with Russia? What would Russia do? Well, how would Russia act? They do the hard work of trying to come to some sort of ceasefire, right? Oh. We don't hear anybody talking about a ceasefire anymore in the U.S. government. Every <laughs> We occasionally hear it from people, uh, leadership in France, and then they get maligned. In the U.S., nobody even talks about it as a viable thing to pursue because they're so preoccupied 100%. with getting the latest weapons package ready, $40 billion this week. Why would so anyone pursue a ceasefire with Russia if they thought they could push Russia out of the territories the Russians have taken or executing civilians in, especially given the way that the Russians tore and shredded the... the uh, two Why would anyone want the to two prefer to cease fires? hostilities rather than perpetuate No, them? because they'd like to push the Russians out of their country. This is what is so uh, is really it? beguiling. Michael, by is that a realistic? Oh, here comes the emotional plea. Oh, Geo, here comes the emotional plea. Geo, Geo, oh, come Gio, on. Geo, I'm trying to have a one-on-one -on -one here. I don't know anything about you. I'm trying to talk yes. about Michael oh, here because I'm we have the same world views. I'm not and you're coming in talking oh. about the gay American yeah. empire. It doesn't mean anything. So, uh, Michael, look. It doesn't mean anything. Geo, Geo, I, I get what you're saying so about well. diplomacy. I, I, I get that. But Very good it's just by implication to say the United States has frustrated all attempts at diplomacy. I mean, that's just not true. The United States tried what to prevent the What direct diplomacy did Biden engage in with Putin prior to the war? And the U.S. talked him out of it. Here's the other thing. Your, your point there is just so mistaken. The United States should not be engaging in one-on-one -on -one diplomacy about the fate of Ukraine. The United States should be working with its allies and working with Ukraine to do that. Rather than doing so there was one no one-on-one -on -one -on -one presuming, hmm. no, the United States should not engage in one-on-one -on -one diplomacy about Russia. Or so about Biden Russia's and Putin shouldn't be on the phone. This is a religious Biden, Ukraine, NATO, Europe, all the interested parties should be involved. But the Russians have historically hmm. had as their primary foreign policy goal the division of the United States from its allies in Europe. Hmm. And that's why Russia repeatedly attempted to make demands on the United States specifically, that the United States specifically keep Ukraine out of NATO. It's a specific attempt to divide America from its allies, from Ukraine, to leave each of these countries isolated so that Russia can take them at its leisure. This is wait, 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 please. Hold on, hold on, everybody. So the everybody. idea that the United States was oh, doing geez. some kind of, uh, uh, you know, was, was uh, pre preventing peace by not trying to negotiate direct with Russia. That's just not true. That, in fact, would have uh, would have made it likelier that Russia would have felt more comfort to take on uh, uh, take on uh, Ukraine uh, free of any kind of intervention. At the end of the day, the Russians lie every time with respect to these negotiations in Ukraine. How can you negotiate with a country that they're, they're just says we're not going to invade right? and then invades? Mm. Their word is worth nothing. And obviously, until the facts on the ground are such, the people of Ukraine feel like they can make peace with Russia. Mm. Russia is going to continue to attempt mm. The war and any kind of negotiation is going to be, you know, we, we certainly hope that Ukraine, uh, you know, can negotiate a good peace. But 
you know, the idea that uh, that uh, the only thing uh, preventing peace is uh, the United States, that's just not true. The only kind of peace that happens, to answer Lev's question, if America disengages, if America, uh, uh, you know, stops uh, uh, supplying Ukraine, is the peace of surrender to Russia. And we both know that's the case. We both know that Russia otherwise would have continued to negotiate and would not have invaded Ukraine. It did that because that was its plan the entire time. It just wanted to try and separate America from Europe first. Mm. Wait, before this we go on further, hold on, please, Gio, please. Gio, hold on, please. Here. Before we go on further, well, I just want to say a couple of things. Yeah, well, Number one, Gio, you put me in a kind of a weird situation here because well, when there are two people, when there are two people, hold Gio, please. When there are two people speaking, and then you speak. That's like uh, cars, you know, with the right of way, not knowing which car oh, has to go has to go first. No, no. When Bastia was speaking, then you were speaking, and multiple times you put me in a weird situation where you wrote that if I were to mute you one more time, then you are going to leave. And yes, here's because the thing. like when we had Scott Greer on, this is what happens, Lev. You stonewall because you are obviously a biased. No, here is how I want to do it. No, 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 Gio, hold, Gio, please. I'm a jerk Gio. Off. And not integral to the show. Gio, you, you help a lot in the show, but here's how I want to do it. Oh, I, I want Bastiat, yeah, I want Bastiat to speak, then I want Michael right. to speak, and then I would want your response as well. What I don't want is to have somebody well, speak and then somebody else interrupting while they're speaking. I think that's very fair, so let's do that from now on. I would love to get a response from Michael to what Bastiat said right now. Again, I want to specifically focus on what are some of these bad implications that Bastiat has been talking about as far as what Russia would do and keep on doing as far is acquiring more territory. There were examples that was shown of Russia doing this in the past. I think this is what people from Bastiats, in my perspective, are the most concerned about here. We don't want a country like Russia to keep acquiring more territory if everybody just decides to sit on their ass and not do anything about that. And I don't really see a way out of that. So I don't know, like Michael, that's that's the situation I'm trying to solve here. And I want to approach this in good faith. I want Gio to respond as well, but I want to make sure we don't step on each other's toes. So here's how Michael, then Bastiat, then Gio. Let's do it in that order. Okay, okay, go for it, Michael. Well, <laughs> uh, uh, Bastiat. <laughs> well. um, Bastiat executed another clever, clever little logical construction that I think is worth parsing a bit. He seemingly acknowledged when I asked him um, that Biden did not engage in any dip direct diplomacy with Putin. And according to Bastia, it was a good thing that Biden didn't do that because it would have somehow emboldened Putin to continue pursuing his aims in Ukraine or something to that effect. Um, but that is a concession that the U.S. did not pursue a certain diplomatic avenue that could have been potentially available to avert the war. You know, In the lead up to the war, you had this very curious dynamic that very few people seem to really intelligently comment upon or point out, which is that every time that Blinken or some of these other officials were asked about the concept of the NATO open door policy, they would on the one hand say that, you know, we are so stridently committed to the maintenance of this policy that, of course, we would never even dream of potentially giving it up as a matter of a negotiation concession with Russia. Um, but they would then say that, of course, also, Ukraine is not at all likely to join NATO at any point in the near future. So why was it that they were so zealously intent on not codifying into some sort of firm assurance what they were saying wasn't going to happen anyway, which is that NATO was not going to accept Ukraine as a member, right? So that is a potentially big diplomatic avenue that could have been pursued that was cut off 
by the Biden administration for reasons that haven't really been, I think, adequately probed. Um, and uh, so, you know, when you're talking about how potentially this could have been averted and you're saying that the U.S. had no real uh, role in, you know, setting in the chain of events into motion that led to the invasion. Well, that's just one example of, I think, a role that they did most certainly have, because it's not just a matter when you're, when you're talking about U.S. being a negotiating party here. I mean, there's a reason why this is never going to be resolved just through bilateral negotiations between Ukraine and Russia, or it's, at least it seems extraordinarily unlikely that that would be the case because the U.S. is such a central player in all this. I mean, you can go through counterfactuals where the U.S. didn't try to, uh, uh, didn't over time convert Ukraine into a de facto military outpost or didn't arm the military and subsidize it and basically um, engage in nation building in Ukraine post 2014, where it even got into the minutia of helping to plan the parking layouts in Kiev. Go look up the USAID document. I'm not kidding. Um, so the, I mean, the U.S. has been nation building and subsidizing the military of Ukraine since 2014. And so it's hard to really engage in a counterfactual about the U.S. role that is that departs from that, because that's just what the situation was, that that was a core condition that gave rise to what eventually resulted in the um, invasion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's but. Because the U.S. is such a prime mover, it must be party to the negotiations. And its word goes an enormous way in sort of dictating the uh, terms of the whatever the negotiation is going to be. Um, so when the U.S. goes out of its way, sorry if there's some background noise. Um, if the U.S. goes out of its way, um, as it did at the end of March, when there was seemed to be a potential window of opportunity for a negotiated settlement, right? I don't know if you recall this, but around the time when Russia said, okay, we're uh, doing this partial withdrawal from around the Kiev area, and we're going to uh, reorient our strategy to the east or whatever, um, you know, there was a report in the Financial Times not long ago that at that period in late March, Putin was at least tentatively, I mean, who knows if this is absolutely true, but it was reported in the FT, okay? Putin was at least tentatively willing to entertain the prospect of a negotiated settlement with Ukraine, you know, after that first phase of the war. And then what happened on the, on the day that those signals were sent? Well, the State Department and the Defense Department simultaneously uh, went out of the way to throw cold water on the veracity of any overtures that Russia might make in uh, accord with trying to arrive at some kind of negotiated settlement. And then, you know, uh, one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, the following day, we get the you know, the uh, blow up over uh, allegedly Russia engaging in genocide, and then all negotiated, all all uh, the all potentialities for some kind of negotiated solution are suddenly off the table, and the U.S. is then dead set wholly on escalating in a whole variety of different ways. Um, so, so, I mean, so that, that, that's the course the U.S. has chosen. I, I don't, I'm curious to hear Basia comment particularly on the issue of the NATO door uh, yeah, policy and why that sure. wasn't codified or they, would, they wouldn't even consider codifying that in hopes of averting the war. Because if you had a choice, right, what would you choose? Codifying what they said was not gonna happen anyway in a formal written assurance as Putin had requested or having a war 
I'm assuming most sane people would probably choose the former option, right? Because we don't want a war, especially one with such a strong uh, potential of potentially escalating into something uh, deeply catastrophic. So, yeah, we want to yeah. curious what your reaction is to that. Okay. So, first of all, just to be clear, I totally reject the notion that Ukraine uh, was ever anything approaching a uh, military outpost. Uh, and I reject the notion that that uh, Russia was talking about a negotiated settlement in good faith. Ultimately, Russia has uh, used lies and deceit uh, to push its military position in Ukraine, uh, as it did in Syria when it talked about ceasefires and routinely violated them. So I think it is very reasonable a month into this war that Russia also lied about uh, you know, not having any intention to start to say, look, uh, you know, uh, don't change what you're doing just yet, uh, because they might be doing this, uh, you know, to, to try and keep you basically from, uh, you know, kicking them while so they're, dispute uh, the while financial they're times. So no, I, I do dispute the notion that I'm not disputing that the article exists. I dispute the notion that that was anything, uh, any kind of a genuine dispute what's reported in the article. Piece. Yeah. I dispute the notion that that was a, yeah, I dispute the, I dispute the conclusion that you're saying was reported in the article. I don't know that the article is making that. I haven't read that, but I dispute the notion that there's a serious genuine opportunity for peace there. So I'm going to put that out before I talk about the bigger issue of, of NATO uh, and the open door policy, because I think that's an interesting point. And I was clearly, I was chomping the bit, you know, when you brought that up. Uh, so I, I appreciate you, appreciate you talking about it because it is a good question, right? I mean, war, uh, if you really think that the choices between war with Russia or excluding Ukraine from NATO on paper in writing, why wouldn't you do that? I think there are a few good reasons why you wouldn't do that. First of all, the only reason any of us were entertaining any kind of, uh, of uh, written accommodation with Russia or, or, or discussion with Russia, and you know, there was some uh, back and forth between the U.S. directly, but on fundamental and Russia directly, but on fundamental questions, the United States said, you know, look, no, we're not going to do one-on-one -on -one, uh, you know, negotiation about the fate of the alliance or about Ukraine. Um, and I think there's good reason for that. First of all, the only reason such negotiations uh, were at issue is because of Russia's implied threat to, you know, saying it wasn't going to, it kept putting, uh, you know, it maintained uh, somewhere between 100 and 150,000 uh, Russian soldiers in the border of Ukraine. Uh, there is good reason for the United States not to say, well, you know, we know you put these troops uh, on the border of Ukraine and it is our position that you're about to invade Ukraine. And as a result of your violent threat, we are going to uh, accede to your demand and put in writing that Ukraine will never be able to choose its military alliance and that uh, we are uh, keeping it out of NATO forever. That's bad one, because the United States is acceding to violent coercion from a, a nuclear power that has shown a record of attempting to engage in violent coercion in the past, and has a record of pushing as far as it, it can until it is uh, pushed back upon. So that's a huge point, because that is ultimately just one, one reason there. That is something that, you know, as a citizen democratic country, I certainly do not want my government to be making terms like that under threat and duress. Uh, in such a fashion as to only encourage future demands now that we would have it in writing on paper that the United States can be pushed around by force. So that's one point. The second point is that the United States is part can of- I, Can I stop you really quickly just there and then you can continue? All right. Just, yeah, we'll, just we'll, a very, we'll very quick yeah. interjection of a question. I mean, so if yeah. it were the case that had the US offered to accede to that demand, it would have averted the war, would you have taken that trade-off? No. I would not have. And so I don't prefer know to have the war. No, I would prefer not to have the war. And I don't think it was a given that Russia would. Invade, but let's say right? hypothetically that it, was, that it would have know, resulted in, in averting fact, the war. Would I accept violent coercion in place of a war? No, 
because the end result is. Well, I think that's an amazing revelation. Actually, no, I don't think that's an amazing revelation. I mean, that's what I'm saying. They seem to be interrupting each other. I don't know. Are you going to step in there as a as a host? Michael, that's like saying, you know, look, I mean, if it's down to, you know, is it if it's down to the annexation of a piece of a territory or war with that country that you're just seeking to peel that territory off of. I mean, what do you choose? Obviously, you'd rather give up a territory than have a full-blown war, right? Well, no, because the implication is quite naturally, look, if you got away with taking this with no cost, obviously, you're going to keep trying. And I'm trying not, by the way, to say, you know, this uh, World War II example, but the logic is the same with all kinds of, uh, of international disputes. If you're really saying, look, uh, war is to be avoided at all costs. And as a result, we accept this violent coercion. You're just going to end up getting more violent coercion. You're going to end up with a war and you're going to be in an even worse position for doing mm. so. Bef that's a, I think that's an mm. important point. I don't accept the logic that there are some things that war is the worst of all things. I mean, it is in some sense, but I guess ultimately it's not the, uh, it, it, I guess I would say that while it I, is I war between America and Russia, oh, wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, everybody, everybody, hold on, hold on a second, please, really please, please, we gotta, wait, wait, beyond the worldview, offer a concession to Russia about a session of Ukraine to NATO than to have a war, I mean, that's actually very illuminating about how you're thinking, wait, hold on, I'm saying that it would be better to accede this is an important you guys this is the most fundamental point All right. not wanting I war I, I didn't think that was a controversial that. opinion it I mean, is it, if you're saying that war must be avoided at all costs even if it means that russia can threaten us with armed i don't force think it's the extract how, it's, it's not a particularly no. high cost to it just is, codify something that the u.s government was saying was never going to happen anyway all, at least it wasn't saying it was never going to happen conceivable saying it would be, uh, sense in the near term oh boy yeah, well, I mean, you're saying a near-term thing but that's the other thing it takes a it takes a uh, voluntary association between Ukraine and the other members of, or rather, the future, the existing members of NATO. Rather, it takes that voluntary decision between uh, those parties, and it adds Russia as a perpetual third party now, because now that we've put it in writing that Ukraine is not going to join NATO if ever Ukraine should change its mind, now Russia is a legal party to that. Russia now has very clear claim, right? As opposed to before, where its 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 claim was uh, of its own accord, now. Uh, it is a claim that has been recognized by America, by Ukraine, by you know, hopefully by, I guess, the rest of NATO, so that it's not just something that we've imposed upon them. And that gets to the second point, that America can't negotiate on behalf of NATO all by itself. I mean, this is an alliance of 30 countries. The United States is certainly the biggest one, but it's not the only nation, it's not the only member. It represents, I think, about half to maybe 60% of the military power of the NATO alliance. It represents less than half of the full population of the NATO alliance. But it's not the place of the United States to say, you know, we, as the biggest member, just get to decide what's what with respect to NATO. And therefore, if Russia tells us, hey, uh, America, you need to guarantee that Ukraine will not join NATO, not only then are we subsuming ourselves to violent coercion, but we're also saying this alliance, this is really just an appendage of us. We'll dispose of it as we see fit. And you Europeans uh, just kind of uh, deal with it. Mm. That's the other thing. It blows up NATO. Before, because it uh, says no longer do we collaborate with our NATO members to come to mm. mutual decisions, but rather we impose and we do so in response to Russian pressure. That destroys mm. NATO. Before, before Michael's the credibility of the alliance and the guarantee. Before Michael's response, I want to make sure, as I promised, I uh, Gio, if you have any response you want to give to Oh, I, I don't have any point. I've been dismissed here. Gio, I'm not, I'm not don't do that. So. Don't do Actually, that. Actually, uh, no, don't worry about it. No, because I think we're never going to get through 
uh, this sort of purposeful lie about the actual role of America in the situation. So I would actually, Geo, I would actually, I'd be happy to go on and on with you about this maybe afterward. Hmm. But I, your point of view is, and I think this is a fair estimation. I think your opposition to my point of view comes from a very different place, I think, than Michael's opposition. Mm -hmm. I think Michael's opposition is more of a, you know, look, I mean, he views what I'm saying as, as warmongering, and I view it as I'm trying to, I think, prevent a bigger war, right? I'm worried that the cost has to be paid somewhere down the line, and I'd like to pay less right now rather than have a, a bigger war in the future. That's my, and I think, Michael, I, I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth when I say, it seems like you think that my whole logic here is just bullshit, and really it's just kind of militarism that enriches the defense industry and established political interests, and that that's really not a thing. We should really try negotiation instead of just you know, all this rest of this stuff. But what Geo, I think, is saying is, look, this whole nation, this idea of nations is very... Mm. You know, Westphalian sovereignty, it's all bullshit. Russia I mean, it could be an interesting... Does have some it, real rights. It could be an interesting conversation, well, but I want to make sure, Gio... I'm, I'm just saying the history of it. Yeah, but, yeah, but, I, mean, but, I, but I, I want to make sure just, that when, because just, when there is a the certain... The problem is when you flow, actually look at the relations that the West had to, to in relation to Russia from the 1990s, from the collapse of the Soviet Union onwards. That's my point. But that's... Whatever, that's... Yeah. So I just want to make sure... Oh, yeah, that, well, that's the whole point, Gio. I want to make sure we understand each other here that this is not any geo-suppression. This is purely if Basiad and Michael are speaking about a particular thing and they're going on and on. Yeah. I want to make sure that as much as I can help it, that the conversation doesn't steer somewhere else and it's not interrupted. That's all. here as to my role... So. No, I, I already told you, bro. I don't have and Gio, either. I never force you to come well, on BTR. Actually, BT I have to go left, so... No, but Gio, before you go, I just want you to know, I never force you to come on BTR. You like to come on BTR, and I appreciate that you come on BTR, but it well, was never... Well, I mean, that wasn't the arrangement that we discussed. That was the arrangement. But again, it's like, that is behind the... All right, see okay. you <laughs> Oh, man, all right. But anyway, let's get back into it. Here's the thing. I, I like Gio's views on philosophy stuff and art-related things, and I think he has a good heart on the inside. But I want to make sure that the conversation itself has a very particular point of view in which it goes into between the two of you. So back to that particular discussion, I want to see, like, uh, Michael, what do you think well, is was, wrong with, uh, yeah, with, with these views of uh, mil the military of Russia expanding and getting other nations, so on and so forth? Like, why is that not a realistic way of looking at it, despite all the money grubbing that could possibly come from certain military industrial complex people, which maybe that happens. And I'm sure I'm, no, I'm sure it happens. And I'm sure that has to be worked on. But regardless of that, do you see any other problem with uh, what we were discussing here with this uh, expansion? Well, when Bastiat was talking, he made a comment about how I appear to believe that his whole view of this situation is driven by profit motive, right, to enrich the military industrial complex or something to that effect. And, you know, whenever I talk about that component of American foreign policy, I often um, make sure to clarify that I really only view it as one sort of layer of this entire edifice that undergirds U.S. foreign policy. And probably most people who are extremely passionate uh, about their particular uh, foreign policy initiative don't regard themselves as just acting from this crude profit motive. And I doubt Bastiat is. He seems to have some very uh, sincerely held convictions and that's why I think it was fruitful that we isolated what I at least 
have surmised is a core conviction of his and is an illuminating one as to the rest of his worldview, which is when I kind of presented this uh, bifurcated choice between whether a war would be acceptable. Uh, I, I presented a dichotomy to him. Would you take the deal to codify this taking off the table of the NATO open door policy, if it meant averting the war. And he said no. And then he gave a whole variety of reasons stemming from his ideological convictions about why he wouldn't regard that as an acceptable trade-off. And I think that actually is very instructive. Um, I think for me, if I'm presented with a, a, an option to either have war or not, it's probably not particularly likely that I'm then going to propose a whole slew of ideological reasons why averting the war is actually not ideal, given the choice at hand. Um, so I, I think, you know, that also pro probably reflects on his view about how uh, the concept of escalation is defined, about the role of the U.S., which he doesn't accept, has... Uh, had an, any kind of escalatory role, and it's all this kind of morally condemnatory uh, depiction of Russia as the overriding kind of force in uh, setting the kind of parameters of the conflict. Um, and so, again, yeah, I think uh, if there's any revelation that we uh, <laughs> have attained here over the course of almost two hours, uh, that's it for me in terms of sort of uh, getting to the nub of what what distinguishes our sort of just overall mental framework and how we process these issues. Do you mind if, if just, I'm curious like to, because I think that is the interesting point. In fact, I feel like probably the, I would imagine that's sort of what the, where the Biden administration's thinking is, although I understand why, you know, that's a hard thing to kind of express as like, you know, public policy. It's, you know, it's kind of complicated, but I think that I don't know what, is that what the what the Biden to say the idea. Is. I think it's probably their position to look. You know, I mean, we are not willing. I think I probably have just laid out basic yeah. in foreign policy. It's like, look, yeah, yeah, don't so. divide NATO, and also you don't get to tell us what to do. Um, you know, maybe we can come out, you know, with a deal of some kind. Right. So they, you you you, ex you articulated a um, I think it's pretty, probably pretty post of, of convictions that, that right. people in the Biden administration probably had okay. that caused them to cause their desire to maintain this commitment to the open door policy to supersede their desire to avert the war. And I think the desire to avert the war probably ought to have superseded yeah. because having a war is really bad. Yeah. And so, has all kinds of potentially unforeseen consequences that yeah. ought to be avoided, if at all possible. And they eschewed that possibility in their diplomatic approach to the pre-war situation. Now, to be clear, I don't quite accept, I think, the framing you just put out that I think, even though our hypothetical was either or, to simplify, to kind of get at the priorities, I don't think in reality it was quite either or. Even though the United States, for example, had all this intel that Russia was going to invade, one of the reasons it released the intel was to try and preempt, you know, to try and prevent, to try and say, look, we know what you're doing, you know, don't, you know, don't do this. So I don't think it was quite either or in, in practice, but I do think there was some, some sort of logic like that. I'd like to ask you, though, is it your conviction that, you know, look, any kind of demand that uh, the Russians make, well, it's not great, but it's better than a war. I mean, what if the Russians, for example, said, you know, look, uh, we demand the entirety of the uh, claimed territory of the breakaway republics, or we demand kind of this, now there's some talk about uh, the uh, uh, 
Sherson uh, in the south and kind of this land corridor to Crimea. You know, look, these are our territorial ambitions, uh, but you give us these and, you know, we call it, uh, you know, no war, peace. You know, we, we agree, you know, let peace. Is that better than a war? I mean, I don't, I, I tend to think that the, ultimately when you reward that sort of thing, you're just going to get a war down the line in a worse position. I mean, I mean, look, 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 there was a uh, treaty that was signed not just between uh, Ukraine and Russia, but also between other uh, eastern regions around where they denuclearized. And the agreement was that we're going to denuclearize. And because of that, uh, Russia should never be able to go into our territory ever again. That was the idea, but that was broken. So what are these pieces of paper worth at the end of the day if you're dealing with a very hostile nation that doesn't respect those pieces of paper to begin with? And I guess I'm just to kind of make the question clear. I'm curious whether like... No, I, I got your, I got your yeah. question, okay. I think. Um, you know, perhaps unlike you, I don't have a well-developed, ideologically infused kind of overarching worldview as to foreign policy where, for example, I love to go... I'm not saying that you necessarily do this, although I could imagine you doing it or somebody who's who shares your sensibility, but go around proffering platitudes about the rules-based international order and how we need to ensure democracy prevails and you know the fight in ukraine is this kind of cosmic showdown between good and evil and democracy versus tyranny and liberty versus uh, totalitarianism or whatever these often strike me as the kind of cliches that people use when what their ultimate ambition is which it's not really kind of uh considered couth to express directly is they want to maintain and expand u.s hegemony which is you know understandable for somebody who has an investment in that hegemony hegemonic status whether from a financial standpoint or ideological standpoint or just from a, you know, a basic nationalistic standpoint as a citizen so whatever angle you're approaching it from i understand that motive but it often gets dressed up with these appeals to certain platitudes and cliches that really don't amount to much when you examine them with any degree of specificity uh, and now in terms of the question that you asked me uh, uh you know given that i unlike perhaps you i don't have that sort of really um, determined worldview that I try to um, graft onto every situation, my kind of core conviction would be, and you know, thank God I'm not in, the, in a position where I'm going to be making these judgments on behalf of the State Department or something, but my just sort of baseline, uh, almost moral intuition um, is that if I'm presented with options that could either result in a war or not. Um, say, say option A is going to lead to a war and option B isn't, I'm probably going to choose option B. I don't think that's a particularly radical or crazy no. core conviction. I think most people probably would have it. And uh, you, you apparently, though, because of the force of your ideological convictions, which you've expressed articulately, uh, would have chosen option A, um, even if it would result in the war. And I think that, again, as I've tried to emphasize, that really does reveal something pretty uh, central to the differences in how we kind of structure our uh, moral moral convictions around this range of subjects. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, uh, I appreciate the, perhaps, it is an interesting framework, you call it very well-developed ideological framework. I know I acknowledge that I do have one, but I, I think the point I'm making well, here is right. not really 
this point, though, I don't think is really a part of that. It seems to me to be a, a kind of a sort of simple cost-benefit analysis. If you believe that the Russians will stop when they've made the final demand, pull the troops back, no more war. And that's it. I suppose if you believe that, then sure. I don't believe that. I don't see any reason to believe it. I don't see any even kind of thinking about things, you know, from a trying to attach myself from that perspective. I don't know how you could look at, uh, at, at Russian history and say, look, uh, okay, you just unilaterally gave the condition and that was the end of it. Now, maybe that's well, an thought, ideological pre, you know, uh, predilection. I don't think so, though. I think that is thought, a cost-benefit analysis of, look, I think the war is coming either way. I want to, if, if it's going to come, I don't want to put them in a better position to fight it. And I think that's what, what you're doing when you give that, you know, give that, give that uh, a condition over. I don't think, though, that that's an ideological conviction. I think that's a, a cost-benefit kind of risk evaluation. Well, when you, first, when you first formulated your view by answering my dichotomistic mm -hmm. question, right. um, I didn't get the sense that what was driving you was sort of a simple cost-benefit analysis. It seemed like you had a principled conviction in how uh, deleterious it would be for the U.S. to acquiesce under duress to a Russian demand that basically functioned to curtail U.S. power or influence. Is that not true? Do you not have that conviction? Yeah, I'll, I'll say that. It seems like that's what you said. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that that is a conviction as well. But I think right. So can, it's not just a cost can, benefit analysis. I think you could totally detach the conviction and come to the same conclusion. I mean, it's not based on like right. uh, ideology. I, I happen to believe also that you know but I'm you a do have that ideology, but you do have, I do have that ideology. Conviction. But I think any citizen of right. a democracy <laughs> doesn't want their country to be pushed around, you know, and and dictated to by an authoritarian state. And I also don't think it's really a an ideological uh, 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 sort of reasoning. Just I think it's just pretty clear reason to say, look, I mean, if you if a dictatorship pushes you around and there's no consequence, even in the sense of not even any pushback, not even any economic pushback, you just you just kind of give in. I don't think it's an ideologically motivated conclusion to imagine that they'll come forth and make other demands as they see fit. I mean, does that seem like I would grant that I have I also feel this way for ideological reasons. But do you think that's a position that is purely ideological? Don't you think there's some reasonable risk evaluation there to say, look, I mean, if you give up the need warning, not be, of course. I guess it, I guess it need yeah. not be purely ideological, but the way that you initially expressed it was suggestive of strong ideological commitments on your part. Now, I guess potentially that could be coupled with a raw cost-benefit analysis. Um, but, you know, that the cost-benefit analysis is necessarily speculative. Like, we don't know for sure what would happen if it were the case that the U.S. offered that concession to Russia and just codified their assurance that uh, the NATO open-door policy would no longer apply to Ukraine. I mean, I, I often, when I hear the cost-benefit analysis put that way, saying, look, you, are, you believe that Russia would then go further. I don't know whether you mean, you know, invade Moldova or Poland or the Baltics or whatever. Um, but I, I often, when I hear that, and I was in Poland when the war, uh, shortly after the war broke out, as you, as you may know. So I talked to a lot of Poles who expressed a version of that belief. And, you know, without trying to demean them or talk down to them, um, because, you know, I didn't grow up experiencing, you know, what, what life was like in the Warsaw Pact. Um, but um, I often couldn't help but sort of hear echoes of like a domino theory style 
interpretation of what Russia was up to, because you know often their ultimate aims were taken to be also ideological, maybe not strictly Soviet, although you talk hear people often claim that Russia wants to reconstitute the Soviet Empire, or maybe you know it's sort of like a reactionary well, the, the Russian Empire, Empire it's, it's, couple, it's uh, well, well, whatever whatever it is, whatever it is, right, whatever. It is, is it's saying you know if we allow the domino to fall in ukraine then other dominoes will fall as well and it's just basically a resuscitation of the domino theory but in this inverted way from vietnam and you know i think i uh, hopefully if we have the same kind of baseline historical understanding the domino theory did not ultimately hold water did it mm. but, oh, i don't know so i, I guess i, I mean, just don't well, have what it be i i just don't share i don't share your uh surety mm. in formulating a, a belief about what will happen if mm. a war were averted. That's why I tried to distill it into a very kind of um, clear and tangible dichotomy. If the war would be averted or not, would you choose X or yeah. Y option, right? And, um, and, and you say you wouldn't because you have these beliefs about what would somehow come afterwards. I just don't know that I have an evidentiary basis to be as anywhere near as certain as you are about those. What did I think the evidentiary basis is the ultimately, I mean, first of all, I think the domino theory question, I don't know that domino theory was exactly disproven. I mean, it is true that after Vietnam, um, after 20 years of increasingly intense American involvement, communism didn't spread too much farther in Southeast Asia beyond Cambodia and Laos. But I mean, the idea that the United States <laughs> just said, 1955. Go ahead, have at it. We don't know. I mean, so if you're going to say you don't know what would happen, that cuts both ways. Hmm. But beyond that, I do think that Eastern Europe is a little different. Eastern Europe, we do have a pretty long record of uh, Imperial Russian, Soviet Russian, and now uh, you know, Russian Federation expansion into these countries that has progressed. For example, you mentioned Poland. All right. Mm. And I can understand why somebody uh, might, uh, you know, without the you know, full historical context, uh, look at, uh, you know, here somebody in Poland who's worried about war and conclude, well, you know, I mean, what are you so worried about? It's obviously not going to happen. They're not going to attack NATO. It's suicidal. Well, I mean, the history of Poland, though, does stretch back quite a ways. And Russia has repeatedly over the last 400 years dismembered Poland slice by slice, first through the three partitions of Poland when it worked with Germany to do that, then uh, through the... Uh, through the uh, next partition of Poland, where it worked with Germany to dismember Poland, and then through the third partition, when it uh, uh, made a deal, when it cut a deal with the Western allies for what uh, the reconstituted and much uh, reduced Polish state would look like. Russia repeatedly pressed uh, similar territorial claims across different regimes. I mean, it's actually kind of wild, given how different the Soviet Union was from the Russian Empire that preceded it in terms of ideology, in terms of economic structure, in terms of government, in terms of all of that, how very similar its approach to Polish independence was. In fact, I even just forgot the uh, the attempt to conquer Poland right after World War I, when the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Red Army attempted to reconquer all of the pieces of the former Russian Empire, and they were turned back by uh, Poland and by the uh, timely assistance of uh, some American uh, fighter pilots, interestingly enough, so, so history, history there as well. But in any event, yeah, so this idea that, like, we can't say that Russia will do this, I mean, look, I think you're kind of battling against... A reasonable presumption that you can draw from 300 years of Russian colonial expansion, where uh, salami slice by salami slice, they take pieces of Eastern Europe until they ultimately run up against somebody who stops them. There may be reasons why this is the case that are based in geography. Some people say that the Russians continue to expand because their geographical starting point is such that, you know, they 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 have a lot of flat land to defend and 
As a result, they have to keep going until they hit a mountain so that they have a more defensible position, you know, or maybe it's because Napoleon invaded and then Hitler invaded, and as a result, it's reasonable, whatever. But I don't think it is, I think it's actually a, a, almost, a, I'd say, a, a presumption that, uh, that it's on the uh, part that the person opposing it probably has to the obligation or but to say that, uh, no, Russia just will go a little bit and then stop forever. Because that is just never I'm been not the case. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying. Yeah. Or at least stop for the yeah. foreseeable future. It just is not, you know, uh, in any historical epoch. I'm not saying not what. The way it's uh, worked. I'm not saying what Russia quote will do. Well, um, you're sort of so saying though, the burden that we of proof. Is, the burden of proof is not on me because I'm not asserting that anything in particular will happen. Well, yeah, because yeah, it's, it's fundamentally a presumption. I mean, you use that word. It's a There's presumption. A um, a so, so that's it, it's it's fundamentally speculative. Bastiat, I got to jump to in say here. That it's fundamentally. I just, I just want to kind of. But it is. I mean, you you you're, you're, right. you're not saying it's you fundamentally know, speculative. You say, you, are you saying you know with one hundred percent certainty that it would happen? We don't know with one hundred percent right. So what will happen it's, in any it's, situation? It's definitionally speculative. But that does not mean that therefore the war is automatically the worst outcome in this situation. Because we do have history we can draw upon. We do have you know we can uh, with some reasonable. Uh, 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 accuracy to to your credit, judge how terrible a war might be. We can we can make assumptions based on reasonable inferences, based on the information that we have, based on history, based on the present about what will happen next. So we're not just going in the dark here. You know, we're not operating blind here. And I think it is very reasonable. It is not just a one or zero speculative, non-speculative to say well, we know I mean, war will be horrible and we don't know what the alternative will be. Eastern Europeans know what the alternative will be. Mm. All right, I got a button here real quick. Well, given the extreme... Right. Hold on, one, one second. Yeah. I just want to throw in uh, World War II, for example. I know Bastiat was mentioning Poland. What if not... By the way, I'm sorry. Could, could, we, uh, could, we probably, could we try to wrap up somewhat soon? Absolutely, but I just have to say one final thing here. So, yeah. so as far as World War II goes, I know I keep bringing up Adolf Hitler, but if we do take a look at the appeasement that happened there, I don't think it's a matter of saying, well, Russia has some particularly Russian thing about it that makes it go into different countries. What I would say more to, like I was saying in the beginning, why I was comparing uh, Putin to Hitler was because if you have one leader who is in charge of an entire nation, I don't think that kind of leader would be able to just say stop at any point. I don't think there would be any reason for a dictator to just say, you know, we've reached Ukraine, we're not going to go any further. And that's because there's no accountability there. There's no system in place to make sure that this country of Russia is not going to keep getting more and more and more territory. And that's been my big issue. And I think we can look at World War II and the appeasement that was done, you know, by that uh, by that piece of paper and say, uh, why is it not the same to say that if similar appeasement is done by the West to Russia it would not happen? So that's my take. Bastia. Yeah, there is something kind of interesting to go to your point that maybe would also square part of why I feel this way. Um, and maybe why I think it's a little different than the Cold War. And that is kind of interesting that you mentioned that, Lev, um, that this sort of goes back to the point you mentioned earlier, where Russia today is sort of a personalist kind of uh, dictatorship as opposed to, you know, the Soviet uh, tyranny, which was a little more institutionalized. You know, there was a party, you know, that could check its individual members, even though the party as a whole oppressed, you know, the Soviet society, you know, um, or the party elite, at least, because it was a big party. Um, yeah, it, that's sort of... Even then, it, you know, maybe you could uh, come to some kind of terms with an institution in a way that you just couldn't really with a person who is who has no longer really got any uh, meaningful opposition. You know, he's managed to to wipe that out. So I think that's another reason why I would be very skeptical of how um, you know how you could really even 
you know, uh, you know, accede to uh, accede to a, a demand from from someone like that. I mean, like other kind of uh, individual dictators who I think would, you know, uh, find success in that. Uh, you know, I keep trying a strategy, I think, until it just doesn't work anymore. So I would sort of agree that it's a little a little different there. And uh, Michael, any response? I would want to, uh, yeah, uh, final final response from you. Um, well, uh, you know, I think your historical, uh, soliloquy is, uh, well taken going back, I think as many as 400 years. Um, but you know, I think we're dealing with the present and if you at least go off the, uh, extreme rhetoric, which that people use to describe the, um, scale of what they regard to be as the crimes against humanity or even genocide taking place in Ukraine. And it seems like the war actually, it was a pretty bad option. Um, you know, I guess you can also, you can t contend that it would be worse, you know, but we have people saying, you know, this is a genocide. Um, this is just like mass slaughter uh, indiscriminately of civilians and rape and, uh, you know, going after children and all this. So I, I um, and, you know, that maybe isn't the style of rhetoric that I would necessarily traffic in to describe how I think the ramifications of the war have transpired. But I do agree that it's a very bad outcome on a number of different levels. And so, you know, that's tangible. That's happening in the present. That's something we can evaluate now in terms of its severity. So for you to kind of hold on to this speculative notion about something potentially happening in the future that would, would be worse, and that's why averting the war ought to be the number one priority, I can't really uh, identify with that because, again, it seems like it's premised on a whole host of speculative uh, assumptions that you might say are foreordained given 400 years of Russian history, but however certain you may be about it, it's still ultimately is speculative. Whereas we don't have to speculate about anything to see what's happening right now in Ukraine and to see that the trajectory policy wise, at least from the perspective of the US and potentially also Russia, um, because you know, I think, you know, from the, your in your introductory remarks, you said something interesting. You said that one, one way that the US has actually escalated the war is that it somehow help Ukraine fend off that initial incursion into Kiev, right? And I think a, that popular interpretation seems to be sort of folkloric and that I don't know what the ultimate Russian strategy was. And even if they were genuinely fended off from Kiev, um, well, the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, said something very interesting this week in Senate testimony, which is now apparently according to the U.S. intelligence community, they do not believe that the reorientation of Russian forces in the Donbass and in the South actually indicates that the war is going to be contained to those areas. They think it could easily, they seem to believe that it could easily just revert back to a larger scale operation elsewhere in the country. So, you know, that potential success that U.S. weaponry afforded Ukraine in the early weeks of the war probably doesn't necessarily have to have been de-escalatory. It could have potentially been escalatory given the longer term sort of trajectory of the war, right? Um, so anyway, I guess that's uh, probably enough. Yeah. We can uh, leave it there unless there's anything outstanding that I should address. Just the uh, just the super chats we have over here in Las Bastia. Do you have any uh, final question for Michael? I guess I just um, I understand your point about we don't know what the future is. 
it just seems to me to be, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, how most people would feel this way. It seems to me like, uh, I don't know how you could say, look, we, we, we can't make uh, reasonable inferences about the future when we're talking about things like demanding uh, territory. You know, I mean, to say that uh, we can, we should give equal weight to the possibility that, hey, you know, a war won't ensue. You know, with the, uh, the possibility to, we should give that equal consideration, equal plausibility with the view that, look, I mean, if, if they're mobilizing troops to threaten, or rather uh, marshalling troops to uh, uh, threaten war, uh, maybe they're going to just do it again, you know, a little, little farther down the line, given that they've got no incentive not to, now that we've kind of given in. I don't think it's reasonable to uh, to say that, that, that uh, well, we know what's going on in the present, we don't know what might happen in the future, and therefore they're not of equal consideration. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we are pattern-seeking animals. That is a very reasonable pattern, I think, to draw based on past events, present incentives, and I think we can, we can say, nevertheless, war is terrible. I certainly agree with that. So that anybody expects things to be so awful in terms of their treatment of civilians in eastern Ukraine, but it is a tragic fact that they, they have been so awful. And yet, I don't think uh, that it, for a game uh, that, uh, well, look, uh, this is basically just, you know, this is the, uh, the worst of all outcomes. I don't, I don't think so. I think the worst of all outcomes is to surrender those folks to Russian rule without even giving them a chance to defend themselves. So. Well, if we're in a situation that is of such severity in terms of the brinksmanship, whether you know nuclear or otherwise, then at any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis, then that alone is a bad enough eventuality that it seems to me reasonable to suggest that um, everything that could have been done in the power of the U.S. to avert that outcome ought to have been done, um, and by seemingly your own admission, it wasn't done because the U.S. government or the decision makers share your overriding ideological convictions that led to choose the option that did not, could not have averted the war. Diplomatic kind of focal point around the NATO open door policy. Um, so, you know, I think that the U.S. forewent a potential diplomatic avenue to potentially, um, you know, uh, avert this sort of standoff and this seemingly intractable escalation. Again, we're in a new phase of escalation just this week with the 40 billion that's, uh, you know, on course to be signed into law. And we have the Lend-Lease Act that was just signed by uh, Biden to, you know, restore the World War II era mechanism for just a continuous provision of armaments. I mean, uh, it's just, you know, side note, but it's just amazing to me that there was virtually no debate around that given the potential uh, grave implications. Um, but, you know, I think now, hopefully, it'll be noted in the historical record that even per what you've acknowledged, the U.S. had a potentially viable option that it could have pursued had it wanted to, had it not been sort of so zealously driven by these ideological convictions to uh, avert the war and it chose not to. I think that's actually something that is quite illuminating and will be reflected back on possibly in years to come. I hope we at least both agree that the war was ultimately caused by the Russians who invaded Ukraine. Well, 
And to say the way you framed it, that the war, as if Russia is kind of just a natural entity that, you know, look, we could have stopped this natural entity one way or another, you know, like it's some kind of of storm, you know, as opposed to an entity with agency that makes decisions on its own. I think that is an important point to remember. Yeah, I mean, I'm not denying the United States didn't make this decision because they wanted a war. Clearly, clearly, you know, Putin chose to invade on February 24th, and that started the war. I mean, I don't know how that can be denied. And I'm not sure what point is being made in acknowledging that. The point is that the United States made a decision not with the point of view of starting a war and not under the hypothetical that we laid out where, you know, we know it's a one or a zero. The United States made a decision to to ultimately uh, avoid giving the Russians uh, a win based on violent coercion. And the Russians responded to that, assuming they hadn't already had a plan, which I believe they already did have a plan. They responded to that with a war. I think that it is uh, important to recognize United States did not cause that. The U.S. also made the decision to militarize Ukraine to convert. I know you reject the terminology of an outpost. I mean, maybe that's somewhat pejorative, but to vastly enhance the ability of the U.S. to exert its military influence in Ukraine. That was a decision that was taken by the U.S. on a policy level across multiple administrations in both parties. So that was a dis- also another decision that maybe would be worth taking into account. So when you're talking about one decision on that chain on February 24th, when Putin chose to invade, sure, yeah, I mean, that's sort of just a trivial point, really, because of course that's true that he used his agency to take that action. But I think it's also a distortion and a mistake to divorce it from everything that preceded it, not to justify the invasion, uh, but to broaden one's understanding, as I've mentioned before, of the conditions which gave rise to the invasion. Out of curiosity, do you think the chain goes back to include kind of the 400 years of Russian imperial colonial history that I mentioned, or does the chain just begin with, say, 1991? Because, I mean, I, I'll go with you on the chain. I just, I guess ultimately my argument is the chain goes well, back I mean, a lot farther. Yeah. I, I guess the, the, ch- the chain that I was thinking of was the one that includes the U.S. as having sort of a determinative policy role in the outcome of events in Ukraine. So there are other chains that one might go down all the way to years ago about Russia's sort of potentially expansionist past. I mean, I'm not actually a history and uh, uh, an expert in uh, whatever Russia was up to in the 1600s or whatever. Um, but um, uh, the the one that I'm talking about, I guess, is a slightly more contemporary, contemporaneous one. Um, you know, obviously, a big turning point was 2014 in terms of the U.S. role, which that's when it really ramped up the militarization of Ukraine, the uh, acceleration of Ukraine to enter into these different sort of phases of NATO status membership um, and and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's that's the one that I'm kind of roughly speaking uh, talking about. But, you know, I don't deny necessarily that if, uh, you know, you want to write a treatise about how this was all foretold by something that Catherine the Great did or whatever, possibly so. All right, guys, we got to go into the super chats. So let's uh, get into the super chats here. So, and I am going to address a little bit about the uh, thing that happened uh, today, which again, I'm... uh, I'm uh, sad that things had to work out this way as far as Geo having to uh, leave. I want to make sure that people understand that when we're talking about I don't uh, force Geo to be here, I think there may have been an idea early on, Geo, let me know if this is not the case, 
that some people may have had the idea that I'm kind of forcing you to be on this stream. I'm not letting you do anything else. I want to make it clear that I don't force you to be on the stream, that you come on the stream because you enjoy coming on here. And since you also mentioned the payment factor, as much as I was able to, I was able to pay. But again, this is like contract stuff. I don't want to get into that stuff right now here uh, publicly. But the point is, is that I always welcome you on the stream. I respect the fact that you have alternate views to uh, more mainstream people. And I think that a lot of the concerns that you bring up are concerns that should be addressed. In today's stream, it was more of a matter of if we're talking about a specific kind of conversation and then you talk about something very, very different, especially when we have three people talking at once, there has to be some kind of a, uh, you know, a, a lessening of that just to make sure that people are able to hear what everybody else is saying. Now, later on, though, I did want it to be the case that I would ask uh, Michael a question, Bastiat, and then bring it to you, and you would be able to talk about the question in relation to what was talked about. I see no problem doing that. And again, like, you're always welcome on BTR, and I can get into a little bit more in detail later on. I don't want to waste uh, Bastiat and Michael's time with this, but suffice to say that I do enjoy a lot of the uh, things that you talk about, not the political things, but the philosophical and artistic things, and I really value that. But anyway, um, let's get to the Super Chats here. So, Duncachino, 199. Uh, for Michael Tracy, when do you go back to on Rob? Ah, Michael Tracy left just as I was asking him the question. So next super chat over here. Zach, I, was that a reference to something? I don't know. On Rob. Any, any idea, Bastiat? No? I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe that was like an, I know there were people in chat saying, uh, you know, Bastiat, do you have Ligma? Like, you know, and then you come mm. up and say Ligma balls. So maybe there was something like that. Maybe. All right. I'm, never, I'm not sure what he's mentioning. All right. Next over here, uh, Zach five pounds in 2011 biden spoke publicly to students in russia that putin shouldn't run for the presidency talk about meddling in another country interesting sure. and next one and yeah for for what it's worth i want to say geo if, if you're listening i'm happy to talk with you for at, at length now i just it just is super you know it's super hard to like go back and forth i didn't know that yeah geo if you it, want so I really wanted to geo if you so want I'll be, to come I'll be, I'll be happy to talk at length yeah, if you want to come back, maybe for another stream. I mean, I know that you guys have contentions. I think, I don't know, Bastiat, you tell me if I'm mistaken here. But even though I am very biased towards Ukraine, I allowed, you know, uh, Michael to speak about anything that he wanted to fully. I didn't interrupt Michael, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, my only kind of frustration was that I, you know, was trying to trying to kind of go back and forth. And occasionally something else would you know, come up and I kind of lose the, lose the whole kind of yeah, I mean, that's, train of thought here. That's, that's the nature of the beast. I mean, on BTR, yeah. obviously, when we have more kitch, uh, more kitchens in the chef, more more cooks in the kitchen, it gets a lot harder to uh, do that. But at the same time, I think having like four people on, it really isn't the worst. And I think there are ways of uh, balancing uh, that out without getting distracted. Anyway, on to the uh, other super chat over here. Uh, let's see here. Um, Massive McGee, uh, two pounds. Can we calm down and talk about the orangutan flanges? So this was back from a BTR stream uh, where we had this guy named Sonny on who was talking about how in the jungle, the orangutan flanges, they grow, you know, it, they get to be really big and puffy. While in the um, zoo, the male orangutans, uh, who are not the alpha, they don't have the flanges. And they end up uh, just, uh, you know... Uh, jerking it to whatever the alpha is doing with the female 
And that was kind of his analogy to pornography today, that we're all kind of like these. And that's the other thing, by the way, like if I were to pick one criticism with more of like the neoliberal people, it would be that, you know, if I were to be uh, advocating for more, more of a reactionary thought here, it would be that I don't think, and I don't think this is your opinion, this is more of like the caricature that people make, is that people don't want life to just be about GDP growth. To just be about that, that kind. I'm not saying that you're yeah, about yeah, yeah, that. I get but... you. Look, what is you know what is what is GDP growth, right? What is that? Is that just a number? It's not just a number, right? That's that's your wages. That's the productivity of the country. The ability to buy goods and services of all kinds of different different types. A heightened standard of living, so that you can do what? So that you can live your life in the way you best see fit. It's not just about raising numbers or graphs or anything. It's about creating the kind of society where people have. The ability to live their lives to the fullest and that's really what it's about so to say well life is about more than money you know it's about you know I, hey i agree but money is an end toward that the reason we want a richer society is so that people can can have more freedom to do things they mm. want to do and i'm not opposed to the richer society part what i am opposed to though is just the you know they have that uh, cliche on the internet you know why don't you just let people enjoy things the reason why I'm not that big of a fan of it is I do believe in hierarchy. I do believe there are people who set good standards for other people to follow because I think most people do benefit from having some model to reach out to and say like, hey, I want to be like this person. I want to achieve all these great things that this person has achieved. And just the idea that's coming from more of the reactionary angle, I think, is there's too many people today that aren't really looking up to anybody other than their own hedonistic uh, urges. And again, I don't think that's fully correct. I mean, it's a, it's a very broad statement. But at the same time, I think things like that do have to be watched out for. And it's not something that people should just dismiss and say like, oh, there's nothing to work on in the culture. Everything is fine. And uh, I uh, was just messaging uh, Michael. I think his feed cut out, so he might be he might be uh, gone. But it sounds like his feed just kind of cut out. Oh so, yeah, 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 yeah. So it had nothing to do with the super chat. No, no, I don't. I don't think so. I just wanted to let you know that uh, it sounded like it. it, it uh, all right. Oh, and by the way, this comment, Lev thinks I'm a monster. He calls me a fascist. Uh, use my real name and face knows uh, what that means. I can't. Okay, first of all, Gio, you do have uh, views that are very reactionary, while at the same time, I do not think you're a monster at all. I think that you are misguided in some of the solutions you see to the problems that I share with you, as far as I share with you the problems of people, you know, not having something, you know, like a higher goal to live for. And I think we both want, I think all three of us, honestly, Bastiat, I would include you here as well, want mm. people to live for higher goals, for it to just be more than just, you know, I don't know, partying at the club or texting on Zoom or, God forbid, making politics, you know, the be-all, end-all of everything. So there has to be more for people to live for. And I, what I appreciate about you, Gio, is that you are able to raise these questions up. The only problem, and I've never been shy about talking about this with you, the only problem is that when you actually talk about the solutions to these problems, and you've admitted yourself on the stream with uh, counterpoints that the solution hasn't like been fully formed, but you don't shy away from solutions that are much more fascistic-minded, are much more authoritarian or even totalitarian-minded. And that is the part about uh, you know your sensibilities that I'm not a big fan of, but I never shy away from saying that. Because I want to eventually see, you know, maybe you can see things in a different way about that. I, I think you can, because I think that deep inside, you know, you have a good heart. And uh, yeah, I don't know. And again, 
like I said before, the whole thing that I was talking about with you, you know, not having to uh, come on if you don't want to, was because I don't want to force you to come on BTR if you don't like the way that BTR is run. And as I said from the beginning, I do run BTR. And as far as all the things that we talked about in uh, private, those are things that we talked about in private. And again, I would respect those things not, you know, again, you know what the deal there is. And again, I... I always appreciate the good takes that you have. And uh, yeah, that's all I got to say there. Right on. All right. Well, um, boss, and again, yes. I think it'd be fun to talk with Gio sometime. Also, I saw people keep saying in the chat, you said, you said you don't even know who he is. I said that because I, I didn't, I didn't know who he is. Not because I'm trying to wave around my status. Like I'm somebody special. I just think, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I that's, don't know. No, but that's I, I the, uh, for a discussion with, Michael, crazy. That's so. That's what I thought. I yeah. Well, into. that's so uh, it's not really. You know. So that's I'm, the big. That's the big uh, thing that, that I think attack. BTR that BTR is doing. And again, if Geo wants to come back, I would love for Geo to come well, back. I'll stick the, around as long yeah. as as long as anybody would like. Yeah, but the thing about BTR is the very fact that you Bastiat did not know who Geo is, and you don't know who Zero HP Lovecraft is, right? HP Lovecraft. Zero HP Lovecraft. Oh no, no I don't know who that is. That's okay, what about Bronze Age Pervert? I'm familiar with that name. Is that um, one of those uh, 2016 type, uh, you know, uh, red pill original type people, you know? Uh, kind, uh, of, kind of around there. No, but the idea that I'm getting to is I think that you do have important uh, things to share with people who otherwise don't listen to you and vice versa. I think there's a lot of things yeah, sure. from, G from Geo's side that a lot of the people in your community may benefit from uh, listening to. And <laughs> the rhetoric is just accuse him of wrong think. I don't know what wrong think is exactly. Obviously, I think I have clear disagreements with, uh, with Geo. I'm not trying to belabor the point here, but since the chat is kind of going on about this, I... I think I have clear disagreements, but I don't know that I've accused him of wrong thing. It's just a, it's like, it's a totally different approach to this issue than either Michael or I were describing. And it's like a, it is a, it's just a whole different thing. It's not even a, I don't know. It was just a whole different thing. I wasn't expecting it. And so I was trying to kind of keep back and forth, you know, like when Michael and I were going back and forth about like, well, Reagan said this, no, I mean, you know, but Biden said this, I'm trying to go back and forth kind of on the subject. That's all. Hmm. All right, guys. Thank you very much for watching. Let's see what the future.